So last year, uh, we did our top 100 movies of all time. Yeah, that was tough. Was this tougher? Yes. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be doing a series of top 10s. Today, we're talking about our top 10 favorite directors of all time. Was that harder than making your top 100 films of all time? 100% tougher. Why? Dalton. Uh, I was, was it harder for you? It was you? more intuitive. You know, it was yeah. sort of, there was much, the 100 favorite movies was much more mathematical and like, you know, I, I used the Flick Charts website and I used yeah. Letterboxd and it was a lot more like number crunching and like rearranging the list and seeing how I felt about the vibe of like, is this a good 60 through 40? You know, like mm -hmm. for this, it was more like, okay, who are the first like 25 to 40 filmmakers I think of mm -hmm. when I think of yep. who do I fuck with? Yeah. And then I whittled down from there. Exactly. And then I kind of rearranged based on like how long have they been working, how influential they are. So I, I did try to like think about cinema history a little bit, but I, I think even more so than last time, this is very much a list of my favorite directors, more so than it's meant to be like representative of anything. The depth chart mattered some to me. Um, there are a couple filmmakers that have only made a half dozen or so movies, but they're all great and I mm -hmm. like them a lot. But yeah, for me, it was like how much. Have you how many films have you made, and how many of those films that you've made do I love? Is sort of the thing I was thinking about, and so do I think, and and also thinking about them as filmmakers, as directing, directing in a movie, mm -hmm. as yeah, opposed I to about that a lot. Uh, because there are there are filmmakers out there who've made a lot of movies I like, but their style and what they do, they they choose good scripts, they get good budgets, but they don't make the movies. You know, they, their directorial eye is not what really makes the movie work. Let me see if this resonates with you. Okay. Does the filmography have voice? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so even, I do have a filmmakers very earlier in their career that I would have had put on the list because, mm -hmm. number one, they're just throwing heat. But two, the list, the the filmography is small, but has already been very impactful. Yeah. So I, I thought yeah. about that a lot too. Like, how how well does the filmography fit together? Are there like dips that are understandable? Are the highs like really high? And like, what kind of streak do they have for like movies that just like really rock? You know. So I definitely thought about like who's got real good hot streaks. I definitely thought. Yeah. About when I also thought, you know, we we talk we're talking off bike about gender. And there's a sort of cultural thing that's at work here is that uh, a, a lot of women directors don't get a lot of opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not as sure about their voice as of yet. They've made two movies and I like them both very much. But does that mean that's my favorite director or one of my favorite directors, right? Or there are other uh, female film directors out there who've made quite a few movies, but I haven't gotten to a lot of them mm -hmm. because of the nature of canonicity mm -hmm. and so it's a blind spot on my on my part you know and i feel bad about that but i, I have to just go with the things i've seen the it, things i think about and the things that have again a depth chart with a voice it's harder to catch the new kelly reichert movie than it is to catch the new tarantino movie you right know, one gets a bigger release mm -hmm. window, you know it and just... the two reicharts i've seen i like same yeah i like the reicharts i've seen but i haven't seen the whole mm -hmm. the whole work right uh, same with like bardo we were talking about we haven't seen mm -hmm. denis i've only seen like the one claire denis movie so like there's definitely uh celine Schiama we talked about or like mm -hmm. there's three right there i'm just like damn those are hitters yeah but i've seen four denis and what the one most recent i saw was kind of a miss for me okay so there you go yeah, then i know she's not a misser but yeah. you know you don't you don't hit them all i mean hitchcock did make all of his movies incredible so i confess there's not yeah. very good there's a a filmmaker on my filmography that has got for me quite a few duds mm -hmm. but the highs are so high right you know mm -hmm. so uh arthur did you have any like what 
hard thoughts about the philosophy of the list or anything? No, I mean... You, I, I know you made some last-second swaps. Yeah, I think, I mean, still, I'm not really, you know, wrapped up on the bottom spot. We'll see what happens, though, on air um, when we're in the list. Mm -hmm. I know that, for me, it's probably a similar process to you. It's like, what are the names coming to mind immediately? Looking at a couple lists to see if I'm missing anybody that just didn't top of mind. Mm -hmm. I think I had three sure sure shots, you know, immediate like this person, this person, this person definitely on the list, and then rounding it out from there. Uh, I think that it was all about who are the the directors that I've watched, I've connected with the stories they've told, and I want to seek out mm -hmm. actively is a big part of it because there are people like they're a good director but i'm not actively trying to see everything they've done i'm, I'm not yeah you know super i mean for example soderberg is somebody i went back and forth with quite a bit i did too because i respect him a lot mm -hmm. I, he's done some great stuff but i'm not actively going to seek out the next soderberg i mean i'll probably try to see it but it's not something unless it's a story i'm really interested in seeing i don't need right. to see oceans 12 and 13 or yeah. behind the candelabra yeah yeah, yeah. And haywire, well, even like ass, what, laundromat. Like, like I'm not going to exactly, go try yeah. to find laundromat. You know what I mean? Sure. So, uh, somebody I really admire, and I, you know, I watched Sex Lies and Videotape just to kind of fill in that spot to see mm -hmm. if that would push him into the the mix, right? But he's well, definitely a short list. You know, if we were going top well, twenty. Even, even yeah. somebody whose movies all that I've seen of my like, I like Robert Altman a lot, mm -hmm. and uh, all I like all the movies of, but I don't intentionally like seek out Robert Altman movies. Like mm -hmm. the ones yeah. I've seen, like that, oh, those are really good. It's a good time, and yeah. I, I like what he does. And but I've just I've never. I, I, I never got the Kool-Aid drink or whatever. Yeah. I've got a couple where I'm like, I want to complete the filmography. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's why they're on the yep. list. Yeah, for sure. Yep. I've got somebody super obvious like... Um, well, uh, well, I'll say I'll say somebody I don't have on my list. Okay. Kubrick. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I've yeah. got a couple of his movies in my top 100, but like, yeah. man, I'm never going to fucking watch A Clockwork Orange. I just don't. Like, I, I get it. I get what it's about. It's a one-timer. Exactly. Like, I just don't. But Barry Lyndon... I do want to get to that one. Yeah, it's good. So, like, you know, there's stuff I want to get to, but it's just like, who cares? Like, yeah, I don't. You don't need me to tell you the Kubrick's like worth getting into. Like, sure, who gives a shit. I don't want to put him on my top ten. Like, right, it's just right. an uninteresting answer. Well, to, and I think layering this, question. you know, this is our favorite directors kind of reshapes it dramatically than what it would be if I was thinking influential or yeah. best or you know mm -hmm. whatever. Totally, because favorite doesn't mean best. Well, and part of my, my thinking list. was also if they made another film, would I be wanting to make sure I got to the theater see it? Or if they release something lost from the archives, made a re-release, would mm -hmm. I be thinking about buying that Blu-ray or yeah, whatever? Yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of what I'm, my, my thinking as well, if they're deceased. Any thoughts on number of films for working filmmakers? Did you guys have like a minimum number? I, did, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't crunch it out quite that much. Okay, I'm just my, curious. I, I stayed more intuitive there. I was just like, but everything I like, everything I've seen I like. Gotcha. Unless it was a woman. Uh, then they had to have <laughs> a minimum. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm thinking a bunch. This guy of, had two movies in contention. We just no, <laughs> there's, nobody, there's nobody with two movies in contention. No, just you know. I did think about those. Like to your point, like if a person only made a couple movies, should they get on? You know, because Same. they've had two hits. Doesn't mean right. that career's going to keep going. That was kind of the one thing. Like, well, it, it was somebody who's not on my list. But if I was making this list, say in 1984, Terrence mm. Malick's got two movies. Yeah, they're both incredible. Both yeah. They're both absolute bangers. But I don't think I had to put them on my list. No, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I thought about Gerwig, but you know, and because I like and, Barbie, I'm well, yeah. sure, but I haven't seen it. Well, and, that, like, and I she's one that I was like definitely yeah. going back and forth about, like, because I, I mean, Little Women's great. Lady Bird's incredible. Yeah, same. I mean, and she's like an important voice. In, yeah, like in the, independent cinema. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as we talked about off air, two films as a 
with director credits, you know, yeah. whether mm -hmm. how, regardless of co-writing credits yeah. and, and starring credits, like this is a director's list, yeah. not just. And a, I don't like, want to put something on this list just because like the hype meme of right. meme, memeness of it, I guess. Yeah, I get you. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the thing we've kind of been talking about this off air and text for a couple of weeks is, you know, we've struggled with this list Man. and what it, what it looks like. And, you know, I think the thing for me is, like I mentioned, there were three who I'm like, well, definitely these are three of my favorite directors. And yeah. then like filling in the other rest of the spots is like, I, I don't follow directors. You know, if you'd asked me to do this 10 years ago, it's dramatically different when Big it time. is much more cult of the auteur and mm -hmm. you know chris nolan probably would be on this kubrick might be on you know tarantino sure. might be on it and then now it's dramatically different and i'm like i don't even know if there's 10 directors i do actively try to seek out and watch i mean yeah 10 years ago there's no way fincher's not on my list yeah, yeah sure yeah. and you know he made the top 25 sure so i still thought about him but yeah just you know i'm i'm looking for different things in filmmakers now for sure than i was when we first started the show i think i don't know if that you know if that changed for you guys at all just yeah. kind of thinking about yeah 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 i evaluate myself more like being more honest with what i want to see and what i want to look for and stuff like that did yeah. you guys think much about like style influences because there are and again i'm trying not to give anything away but there are sort of directors who work in the tradition of a previous director and you might like them like both. a de palma who is very much hitchcock it, 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 yeah, is that what you're saying that's a great example yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and so you're like well but i prefer you know to watch the newer ones i prefer the yeah. older ones you know do you, do you do you take the urtext do you take the way they riff off the new one well i've got i got an example for you i have oh. the ur text and a riff on the ur text okay do you yeah. yeah in my list in my list i have the riffer and not the ur interesting yeah. i have a riffer too and not the ur yeah uh, but I, I at one point in my list i, I have a little have. bit of that probably interesting just mm -hmm. by the sheer influence of some of these early directors sure sure as absolutely. well yeah well now i'm getting really curious should we jump right into it I, I I guess we could do that. So or again, do we have any preamble that we feel like has to be addressed? We're not doing a movie. We're not doing the films that you would normally discuss on a film size course. I am still Dustin. I am still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And we're going to give you our top ten favorite directors. We'll go tens, nines, uh, I, maybe. And this is sealed, ironclad. It can never change. <laughs> uh, well, and we will sleep easily tonight. Peek behind the curtain. I have already. I don't know about you guys. I've already changed my top 100 from last year. Mine's uh, moving around. Yeah, yeah I haven't yeah. even thought about I, it. I haven't, I haven't made I'm adjustments. Sure it would change. If I made it, I, I know mean, it would be. I, I think a lot about Drop Dead Gorgeous being on that in Slums of Beverly Hills. I yeah. think Horse Thief, which was like uh, in my top 90, mm -hmm. is probably in the 40s now for me. Uh, I you took know. Terminator 2 way up the list and then took something else like way down the list mm -hmm. i pulled out i need to look i haven't even looked at it since then so i need to look yeah. at it and kind of see i thought about putting it because you put yours in letterbox yes didn't you? yeah and I, made, I thought about doing that when i when manageable. i cemented the list onto letterbox to make it more manageable that was when i started doing edits mm. and stuff yeah. yeah yeah that's a way to do that too for sure um but we'll do tens um Let's see this. If we agree, we'll just say uh, you'll. I'll talk more about this one later if it's somewhere later in the list, like we've done okay. before. Yeah. yeah. And then if we did not place it on the list, maybe some of our rationale for not. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. I was like, yeah. I thought about that one too because yeah. I mean, we have tastes that are similar. We're not gonna go like that. That. I mean, know, yours that. is probably gonna be. I, I feel like Dalton and I might align a little more. But we're not going to say your director's yeah. dog water and I hate everything about them. Why'd you even put them on the list? Well, if they only make short films, I'm going to I'm call them not a real director. Uh, uh, if, you, if you put <laughs> Roman Polanski on your list, I'm going to call you a sex pest. Well, yeah, I, so. I didn't. So. If they only make experimental films, <laughs> <Yeah>. quote. <laughs> um, I have one Don't tell me I'm not allowed to be mad at directors on people's lists. <laughs> I, I, I have a couple filmmakers who have made experimental films. They are all known for their narrative features. Yeah. So, okay. okay. So, well, I, uh, both and. 
in um, one case. But we'll we'll get to that when we get to that. Do you guys have any thoughts? This might be fun. So I, I think we might make a regular thing of this. This is, again, the second year we're sort of taking a summer vacation and doing lists instead of watching movies for yeah, a month. vacation. That's funny. Uh, yeah, I've still got to make the content. Uh, <laughs> what kind of lists do you think we should make next year? Because, you know, we've, we know what we're doing this year, obviously, and we've agonized oh, yeah. over it. But we're doing actors and directors this year. We're doing TV shows this year. Mm-hmm. And we're doing one of our favorite decades this year. And we're not even doing just our favorite films from that decade. We sort of thought of an interesting spin on it. Yeah. So what are some th- thoughts on like what we could do for year three of, mm-hmm. of uh, the Summer of Let's Lists? Let's crowdsource those ideas. Yeah. 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 If you want to give us some ideas for next year's Summer of Lists, uh, you can find us uh, on uh, the interweb in a few places. You can email us goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. It's goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at goodtrashmedia or at goodtrashmedia on Instagram. Neither one of those are we, you know, I was in charge of the Twitter. Well, Arthur and I split the Twitter and we both decided that's a bad place. And Arthur was always in charge of the Instagram. And that, you know, so th- th- those things don't get updated. I give you the Instagram because you're. Uh, I, yeah, I, I guess I should. You, you do good you you work over there. I'm, yeah, I'm started. A I don't know if you want another thing in your. Yeah, do I in need your another, life? Yeah, but, Ooh, boy. Uh, I mean, more social media is good for mental health. I hear. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's I've made the joke on Caleb's podcast about how I've traded uh, Twitter for Instagram, like an uh, alcoholic <laughs> trading coffee and cigarettes <laughs> for booze. Right. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, we're at Good Trash Media. Excuse me while I take a drink of my coffee. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, we're at Good Trash Media on pretty much all your socials. Uh, Good Trash Genrecast for just the, the, the classic email. Uh, and then, you know, if you want to find our Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash GTM. But yeah, uh, hit us up if you got some thoughts on what we should do for the Summer of Lists next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but should, do, should we keep last year's rotation? I believe we did you, Arthur, me was the... Or was it Arthur, Arthur Dalton? Me, you, me, yeah. Is that how it was? Well, the yeah, let's, let's do it that way. Yeah, right, unless, unless we care. I, I couldn't. I, I can't I, remember what last summer's was. Yeah. So we swing to you first, Arthur. Number ten, the tenth best director of all time. Your tenth favorite director of all time. Yeah, let's yeah, let's reframe that. The, the, the tenth most director. These are the ten greatest directors of all time, <laughs> bar none. Uh, I my number ten is one who's probably going to come up again. Uh, he is one who, because of his very limited. Uh, output so far uh, is kind of keeping him at the bottom of the list, uh, but he is yet to miss, and I've yet to miss uh, him in theaters. And that's Jordan Peele. Yeah, that's my number mm. ten as well. Um, yeah. I think that fair tens. I yeah. mean, to just a you know come out. When we've seen number, of, we've talked about a number of directors coming out swinging, fully formed. We talked about this with the Coens. We talked about Blood Simple. You know. Uh, in that movie, their first movie, we see a very fully formed Coen Brothers vision uh, and, you know, look and design and voice. And, you know, some directors come out swinging on the first one and they they have it. And mm-hmm. um, sometimes they go down after that. Sometimes they only uh, seem to stay steady or go up after that. And, and Jordan Peele seems to very much be in the camp of going up. Um, he takes big swings each time. Uh, Us uh, had a much more sort of labyrinthine not 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 labyrinthine but a a little more complex of a plot than get out it's my favorite one of the three i think it is for me as well yeah Yeah. it's like got the least straightforward metaphor yeah and then you know nope i really enjoy as well um very much kind of an oh you were just talking about this you know the riffers and the riffies and very much kind of riffing on classic spielberg Mm -hmm. and then the blockbuster of yesteryear uh, and doing this comedy horror blockbuster uh, yeah. that just works. And I think, you know, uh, he's got an interesting voice, a unique voice. Uh, I think he's 
making interesting choices, following interesting projects, and telling interesting stories that all have a, kind of a, a thumb on the pulse. You know, they are looking at the culture, they're looking at society, they're looking at issues, but they're also interesting, you know, whether that's wealth and class of us, you know, the race of politics of Get Out, or the, the kind of history of film and the impact and power of media on performers and animals and people, like, there's a complex thematic structure there in Nope that's very interesting. Yeah. And so it's those things, those choices, as well as just making very well-constructed movies that are exciting and interesting and what's going to happen. You know, it's he's one of the few filmmakers that he's not relying on, uh, you know, the, the plot twist, but he is relying on smart marketing to mm-hmm. whet the appetite to go in and then where is this going to go? I don't know. And then I'm very excited to find out. So I like I like Jordan Peele a lot. Uh, I think it's recency bias, and I'm afraid of is why he didn't make mine. Is mm-hmm. I, I get that I struggled with this er, choice. We're early in on there, and yeah. so that that's that's where I was struggling. I really like everything he's done yeah. so far, though, and I like his production work as well. So he's picking the right projects. Um, yeah, he he's occupying that sort of Hitchcockian space of producer and director, and yeah, I, yeah, I, I like what's going on with him. So he. There were three filmmakers who have three films, Robert Eggers, Ari Aster, and Jordan Peele, that I thought about. All three of which did not make mine for that reason. Exactly. Mm -hmm. One of which made my list, and that's because one of them, I mean, I think they're all essential filmmakers, but one of them is a capital E, capital A, essential American filmmaker, Mm. because of all the things Arthur just said. Right. All of these films are not only in conversation with American film history, they're in conversation with what America as an experiment is about and how much of that snake oil, how much of that is heartfelt sincerity, how much of that is some sort of sneaky lab under the surface. And that's what I find so interesting about all three of these movies is there's this force behind the scenes pulling the strings and it is something we recognize from our own lives. It is just the tale of you know, who wins and who doesn't win. And all three of these films are about that to varying degrees and in different ways. Mm. Uh, and, and as he gets bigger, he gets more ambitious, right? Like mm. even his crowd pleaser, Nope, has got some really kind of weird experimental notes in it. And you talked about, you know, uh, the the themes in these three films, uh, you know, obviously get out sort of the obvious one that's about race and in, in quotes. Mm-hmm. But Nope has got all kinds of kind of mm-hmm. interesting stuff about the difference between like the Asian American mm-hmm. spirit experience versus the black experience and like how the the business of show like impacts those identities and like mm-hmm. impacts how you were able to express yourself within, you know, your assigned identity or whatever, like mm-hmm. just an essential filmmaker. And, and they're so fun, right? Yeah, like when we're talking about these like very serious and high minded. They're kick ass genre movies. All yeah, three of them. They're yeah. just a good time. Yeah. And I, they're ex- I get excited every time I watch one and every time I talk myself out of, well, this is couldn't be a five star movie. I'm just, I've got recency bias and I'm, you know, I like his work as a sketch comedian so I'm, I'm I'm invested in the narrative of him as a filmmaker, and every time I start to talk myself out of it, I'll rewatch one of the movies or just watch some scenes from the movie, and I'm, nope, 
Blows your face off. Nope. Every time. <laughs> Every time. He's just that good, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what a filmmaker. Uh, very exciting uh, career, and I can't wait to see what comes next. So that's two ties for number 10 for Arthur and Dalton. Do you have any more you want to say about Peel? No, I, I, I feel I, pretty I, happy about that. So number 10 for me was Akira Kurosawa. Nice. Uh, yeah. So, uh, man, I tell you what. There is something about uh, the, the Bushido stuff that ties in with this sort of samurai movies that he's sort of most well-known for, the ways in which he's experimenting with modernism and the modernist form in a movie like Rashomon, the way he's an incredible humanist existentialist like he is in his uh, non-samurai peri- uh, contemporary piece, Ikiru. Even to his collection of shorts from 1990, his last set of films, Akira Kurosawa's Dreams, which has got kind of Godzilla riffs in one of those shorts, uh, sort of post-atomic mm-hmm. kind of stuff there. He's just, he's a really, really thoughtful, really, really arts, um, artistic filmmaker. I also love the sort of cameo as of um, Martin Scorsese playing uh, Rembrandt in one of those shorts there in Dreams, so that's a good time. I'm recommending Dreams, apparently, uh, very, very highly there. But, um, yeah. And then, of course, my favorite Shakespeare ad- adaptation of all time, which is Ran from 1985, Technicolor Samurai, but it's King Lear, and just just an incredible artistic storytelling mind that's always sort of mindful of the visual in the construction there. Just great stuff, and love, love, love me some Akira. I assume Kurosawa did Mike either list for you guys. No, no I've only seen like two of them. Correct. Yeah. So, but I want to see more, but an exciting filmmaker for sure. You should. All right, that's our tie for number 10 with Jordan Peele for Arthur and Dalton. Kurosawa for me at number 10. Number nine for you, Arthur. What do you say? Uh, my number nine uh, is a filmmaker who is no longer with us. Uh, he passed away a little over a decade ago. Um, these guy who I really took a while for me to come around on. Um, and it was probably when we were doing uh, maybe our Always Be Watching Denzel marathon mm-hmm. and we watched Crimson Tide uh, that I came around real hard on Tony Scott. Um, mm-hmm. Nice. I think, you know, you're talking about voice, you're talking about vision, you talk about direction. I mean, the guy understood spectacle more than most mid-budget action genre directors. One well, right? hit rate, too. Yeah. I mean, he, he's worked with, you know, he works with Denzel multiple times. He works with Will Smith. He works with Kevin Costner. He works with some of the best uh, uh, movie stars. He understands, what, I think, what audiences want, uh, which is part of a long tradition of classic directors who seek out two excite and thrill the audience. And so Tony Scott's um, very talented and very capable of constructing movies that keep you on the edge of your seat. Uh, very exciting, very energetic, very kinetic. Um, that's usually able to have a lot of heart and, and empathy as well with characters that maybe not widely drawn, you know, they're pretty thin sometimes, but they're still uh, worth rooting for. And that's often because of the casting uh, of those, those actors that are in those parts. And so, uh, I, I feel like, you know, if you're talking about, you know, it's, it's money ball, it's, it's not about going up and hitting a home run every time it's about getting on base. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he makes just solid movies. Uh, he made solid movies every time it felt like he was out. Um, but there was something deeper there. And, you know, if you go back his filmography, you look at something like the hunger with Bowie and Sarandon, mm-hmm. uh, which is this sort of eighties industrial, arty horror movie, which is bizarre and weird and quirky and maybe something a little more akin to what Ridley might do in the eighties. Right. Uh, and then, so that, that is there, but pivots hard. Maybe he likes money. I don't know. Uh, but, but he makes <laughs> top gun and never looks back. Right. He works with Brockheimer quite a bit. 
uh, and, and just make some of the biggest action movies of the 90s and early aughts. And so I, I love him. He's one I've kind of actively sought out uh, in the last few years to try to fill in some of those gaps because I'm just very engrossed and engaged with his films. And I appreciate that. I appreciate his style and the way he handles you know, action, the way he handles set pieces, the way you can kind of track that. Um, the action director, I don't know where uh, we're at with that uh, in, in this world now of mm. CGI Netflix blockbusters that are, you know, on a stage with blue and green screen or previs or LED boards or whatever it is. Uh, and it's very refreshing to go back and watch a director who understood how to navigate uh, spatial awareness on screen and give us practical uh, set pieces that are fun to watch and engaging. Um, even though they may not always be realistic. And so, uh, number nine, it is Tony Scott. Very good, very the good. Only, I like the only Scott that's going to be on this list. That's fair. That's fair. Well, thank you very much. What's number nine for you, Dalton? Okay, so this is the one that I'm going to get dragged for, I think. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Is it Ridley? This, no. <laughs> this filmmaker has one, I would drag you. one film. All right. They made one picture. And never again did they sit behind step behind the camera. Did they sit in the is chair? Is it Arnold Schwarzenegger Christmas in Connecticut? No, it is <laughs> Charles Lawton with Night of the Hunter at number nine. I thought about yeah, yeah. it's a good movie. I remember it's when a... you were talking, we were talking about that in the text, and you were you know how many should they have? And I thought about Lawton because yeah. I almost mentioned he's got a good eye. It's when you when you make that, you only have to make one movie, baby. Right. That's what I say. Uh, and, and for me, it is a big bit of like what an influential film it is, what a film out of time it is. Like, I get why it didn't land in the 50s. Like, mm -hmm. it's just, again, it's about the depression, which people are like still getting over. Like, the 50s are kind of like looking back on the last 30 years and trying to figure out what the fuck just happened, man. Uh, and it's it's not really a film that has like a rose colored view of America or history or human nature for that matter. Uh, it's got a pretty dark grim outlook for most of its runtime uh, and then you find this sort of classic hollywood glimpse of joy at the end of the picture and it really does put a nice little bow on everything like it's doing so much it is this german expressionist scary serial killer drama about children on the run and then it's a found family film mm -hmm. out of nowhere mm -hmm. and it does all of these things so cohesively and is doing so many different kinds of movie and is operating in this space that to me is like pure cinema is like the, the dream that you'll never wake up from the dream. You'll never forget. Like it is really just operating at the peak of what a movie can be for me. And it's in terms of, you know, sets and using some sort of the unreality of the set to sort of evoke something more magical and more mystical. Uh, but also, you know, using on, on location outside shooting a, a little bit, it's, it's kind of unclear sometimes when you're on a set and when you're actually outside, which is part of the fun of this film mm. for me. And, and part of the, you know, the fun of this era of film, I think is the artifice of, cause you know, at this time in film, it's a lot harder to shoot on location because the gear is just bigger and clunkier. And so there is just sort of this interesting, I, I thought about it when you were talking about Kurosawa, just because he, he works for so long, you mm -hmm. know, his style evolves, but you know, we Lawton is just working as, you know, an actor, right. And as a, as a, a classically trained English theater actor and, you know, obviously was very famous as a film actor as well. 
but it, it's interesting to see somebody whose whose first language as a storyteller and as an artist is actor and to see them still like so have such a clean visual eye and there's so many like really striking images in night of the hunter uh that it really blows me away that th- this is the one and only film he ever did I'd, mm-hmm. i'm curious like what other visual arts he was into yeah uh, i haven't been able to find that i haven't done any research on yeah, him as a person at all i wasn't yeah. able to do as much research about the our filmmakers as i would have liked we had a kind of a quick turnaround on this project but uh yeah i just i really think he's he's really remarkable and he left the industry because he was so sad. Like he put his heart and soul into this picture and it was a bomb and nobody got it when it came out. And he just never looked back. He said, well, okay, I guess I'm not a good filmmaker. And I say, I vindicate you, Charles Lawton. You are a great, fine filmmaker. Uh, one of the most important to ever do it, even though you only got the one picture in the can. Uh, when you, when you do it that good, you know, it's okay to only do the one. Uh, that's what, that's why I picked him. You know, I just want to vindicate this filmmaker who like, was just so sad that people didn't get his movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel that's 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 the scary thing that's about disheartening. Yeah, that's the scary thing about making art. Like you're really putting yourself out there and and hoping people like get your vision. And if they don't, you know that that like can make you feel like you're that that can put you in a headspace where you feel like that reflects on you, and uh, that might make you feel. And as somebody who is you know living his life uh, in the closet. Uh, because of the time and mm-hmm. the, the era, you know, it, to show a part of yourself with this this film and, and to be rejected, uh, I, I can see how that like you know probably had a pretty negative impact on his psyche as an artist. Sure. Uh, so anyway, Night of the Hunter, Charles Lawton, good shit, baby. Very good, very good. I hope your number nine has directed more than one, or your your number eight has directed. Well, you're we're on your nine. We're not on nine. Sorry. Yeah. Your number nine has directed more than one film. He has 60-some <laughs> on directorial credits. Good God. So we go from <laughs> the island of Japan uh, to the UK and then peaking in the United States. It's Sir Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, of course. Uh, man, I, I, I mean, golly, if you say one thing, you said all the things. Do you need to say all the things? Alfred Hitchcock makes good movies, yeah. And uh, he's just always had an interesting eye. He's got a, a distinctive voice. He has uh, got certain proclivities. Uh, he's also a... Somewhat problematic director. We we had to understand he was mean to Tippi Hedren and others uh, throughout the course of his directorial career. Kind of one of those maniacal, like I'm the boss types. Yeah, yeah. very very autocratic. Yeah, sort of dictatorial kind but, of directors. But like Lawton, one of those guys that modern filmmakers like get obsessed with. Yeah, which is interesting. I mean, yeah, you talk about the. I mean, his name becomes an adjective, Hitchcockian. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's the thing. Uh, what do you watch? You watch everything. My favorites are Shadow of a Doubt, probably today they are, and Vertigo. But tomorrow it might be different. But that's what I would say. Well, let's circle. This is actually a fun thought experiment for us to like close out each entry. Arthur, let's backtrack a little bit. What's the Tony Scott movie you would tell like somebody wanting to like see what's what the fuss is about? What's the one? It may be Crimson Tide. I think that's right. Yeah, I think I mean, that's a good. I, I mean, I love Days of Thunder, mm-hmm. but I mean, or or Unstoppable. It's Unstoppable or Crimson Tide. Nice. I mean, Denzel I think helps with both of those cases. Mm-hmm. But man, Gene Hackman and him going head to head. I think Crimson Tide. I mean, you put him in that sub, and I mean that automatically raises the stakes. Mm-hmm. I think I go. I don't know what your answer for Peel would be. I think I go Nope, just because it's such an exciting, crowd pleasing film. Yeah. Even though it's got like some of the most disturbing imagery <laughs> of any yeah. of his movies, I haven't. I need to revisit. I'd probably go Get Out, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I've you know had students watch that, and if they hadn't already seen it, they like it, right? For Curacao, I think I would do Kagamusha. 
Okay. That's the one to go with, yeah. I mean, uh, I like a lot of other movies. Yeah. It's, it's a longer one of his samurai movies, so it's more of that taste, but it's also in Technicolor. Mm. And it's got a dream sequence that is kind of to die for. Gotcha. Nice. So, and, and Hitch, one more time? Hitch, uh, today I will say, watch Shadow of a Doubt. Okay. Nice. Today. I'm sure we'll talk about it more later. Uh, I thought we might he talk might about Hitch make twice. another appearance. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. So, all right, moving on then from number nine to number eight. What's number eight for you, Arthur? Uh, well, uh, what you'll probably have already deduced by now uh, is I'm pretty commercial and genre savvy, and so I, I've got at number eight uh, maybe one of the more important modern horror figures um, who we probably will in you know, kind of film history look back on as very important to uh, the shape and shift of horror because of a movie in the 2000s uh, called Saw. And it's James Wan. Nice. Um, That's a fun pick. That's a good yeah. pick. I, I mean, I like one. when we talk about you know directors, I mean, I actively try to seek out you know the the next time he's attached to a movie, I'm going to go actively try to you know seek it out in theaters. Uh, when Malignant released, you know, it was day one streaming for me. Right. I mean, that's kind of where he's at. I'm, yeah. I'm very interested in the projects he picks, what he does, and he has shown a proclivity to be able to do horror very well. I know some people may not love his style, uh, but he can also do comedy. He can also do adventure. He can do action. You know, Fat 7, Furious 7 uh, is fun. Uh, Aquaman is a good time. Uh, he has shown that he can kind of navigate tonally these different spaces, these different genres, while still keeping that thing that's very, I think James Wan about him, his mm -hmm. style, his look, his vision for it. Um, obviously, very, you know, big part of the horror move of the, the 2000s with Saw and the influence there, but also with The Conjuring Insidious uh, as well. And so he's one I enjoy that I really like watching. He, I think, has an appreciation of kind of classic horror and B-horror. If you've seen Malignant, then you kind of know, uh, you know, the, the big uh, Art Deco hospital on a hill type stuff from the 60s is very present there. God, what a cool movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's just fun. And, yeah. you know, also kind of like you mentioned with Pill as a producer as well, he's finding stuff, finding different movies to highlight and produce and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, he's just somebody I greatly enjoy. Uh, and I love his work very dearly. I mean, the the one for me is probably The Conjuring. Mm -hmm. right? When when that came out, just absolutely loved it. I think it's one of the best years. Probably one of the best you know, horror movies of the last decade or so. So, very good. James Wan. James Wan. Yeah. Good yeah. pick. Good, good pick. pick. What comes in at number eight for you, Dalton? Well, this filmmaker is interested in a lot of the same things that I'm interested in, and that's why I picked them. You know, they're they're interested in like insular worlds and government. And sort of the arms of government and what that looks like, and, and especially they're interested in masculinity. Uh, so at number eight, we have Catherine Bigelow. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, she she gets the low ranking because boy, did a lot of her movies walk up to the line of propaganda and copaganda. Yeah, uh, she really <laughs> rides a fine line. But I think what's that's what's so interesting about her. She's interested in these men who carry guns, let's just call them, right? Because she's made a couple of troop movies and a couple of cop movies. Uh, one of, which I should say, one is one of my blind spots, uh, Blue Steel, mm -hmm. the cop film she did with Jamie Lee Curtis yeah. in the 90s. That's that's my one big blind spot on this filmography. Uh, I think I've seen everything else, though. Um, oh, I haven't seen Detroit, which I similarly... I like Detroit. Yeah, I know that's one people have kind of mixed it. Yeah, I you know, I just the weird reaction to it kind of took the wind out of my sails to see it. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm less interested in this docudrama phase of her career anyway, which we'll call the Hurt Locker, 
um, Zero Dark Thirty yeah. Detroit is sort of her docudrama era. Mm-hmm. And that's not really the era that I'm in, most interested in. I do like when Zero Dark Thirty came out in 2012, that movie blew my fucking hair back. I was really all about that film in my 20s. As I got older, I, I, I've sort of kind of turned on that film. I haven't revisited it in a while, but I'm very fascinated in it as a, a film about American character and like what our whole fucking deal is. Uh, and I'm very interested in that film and it's like tacit endorsement of torture. Uh, it really wants to have its cake and eat it too with torture. And I think that's a very interesting aspect of that film. And uh, I am very fascinated by the final image of that movie, uh, which is a, a an image about how uh, vengeance is never worthwhile. E- even at, you know, when it comes to nation states, it's just never worth it. Um, so even though it's a film that I'm kind of torn on, I think it is really interesting. Uh, Hurt Locker, I'm, I'm not really excited about, you know, it's, it's, I know some people really like that movie, but for me, the, the juice really is near dark point break strange days. Yeah. Holy shit. That's three crazy good movies. And even, uh, K-19, which is like her big dud. I still think it's kind of interesting. It's fun. You know, it's, 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 yeah, it's a little, it bo- it's a little boring at times, but like it's boring because being on a sub's boring and yeah. like bureaucracy is boring yeah and it's it's again one of her movies is very much interested in like insular worlds and how much more insular do you get than the crew of a sub um so i am you know i I think even when she misses she's doing something interesting but with near dark point break and strange days like all three of these films especially you know near dark being her vampire movie and strange days being her sci-fi film these are kind of the most outsized uh, of her stories and even with point break which nominally takes place in the real world like still features skydiving it's bank not robbers. the real world exactly <laughs> yeah. it, i like well we're i'm gesturing vaguely at the real world that's what point break does <laughs> right yeah, sure. but it, it is kind of fantastical and not necessarily the same way as something like near dark but definitely yeah like again johnny utah who becomes a skydiver and surfer to get in close with Bodie. i mean come on yeah, yeah. it's silly but it's the red hot chili peppers live yeah. next door still in meth you yeah. Know, yeah maybe the best uh bisexual american film of the 90s who's to say I don't know, maybe me. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, I really love like when she's cooking, she's cooking, and uh, I'm just very fascinated in her her filmography, especially that run in the '80s and '90s. I say start with Near Dark. It's kind of the harder one to find, but I think it's like reliably on Criterion now um, on on their streaming service. It, it floats, or maybe it's movie even. It's it's it'll show up every once in a while on sort of the the specialty streaming mm-hmm. services, but it's 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 out of print as far as I know physically. Yeah. Uh, but it's a really cool movie and definitely heard making it, it's a real kind of fun joiner between Loveless, her first film, which we discussed on the show a long time ago, which isn't, you know, like quite like Blood Simple, a like right out of the gate. This filmmaker knows who they the more are. I think about the more I like it. See, I'm the same way. Yeah. I, I don't think it's quite like a 100 percent right out of the gate success, but you can see a lot there. A lot of the juice is already... Well, there's a different Catherine Bigelow in there, too, that exactly. could have been, and I yeah. kind of wish I had more of that. Right? Yeah. A, a much more experimental Bigelow that's, you know, still interested in masculinity, but is less interested in kind of traditional, conventional action narratives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I still think her when she's doing those action narratives, I still think she's doing really yeah. fun and interesting work. Uh, yeah. I, I Again, Point Break's the obvious biggie on the eye chart for most people, but I, I say go check out Near Dark. I think that's a really fun one. Uh, I just trying to figure out if there was streaming anywhere. It's not streaming right now anywhere, not even for rent. There you go. Uh, and one of the outer print Blu-rays looks like it was designed to capitalize on Twilight. Uh, <laughs> so it because, does look very uh, Twilight. The boy, uh, the main lead boy, 
uh, has a very Edward uh, design he on does. this cover. I love it. Uh, which is very funny. That's great. How much is that that out of print Blu-ray going $92. for? Ninety-two dollars. Wow. Region A. Wow. There's a Mercy. forty-five dollar import from France, which has a much better cover. It is a good cover, but I bet you it doesn't play. It's Region B, so yeah, I won't even play here. So. Un collection de Jean-Baptiste Del Rey. Make my day. Near Doc. Au frontière de l'Aube. Un film de Catherine Bigelow. Wow. What a career. <laughs> Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen. <laughs> <laughs> what a picture. Phenomenal. All right, so for number eight for me, uh, what I would say is uh, this filmmaker has one of my top five movies of all time, but um, the entirety of the filmography doesn't quite have the same weight for me, Mm -hmm. although I like a lot of what I've seen uh, from them. So we moved from the UK to Thailand with a P.T. Tong, we Esther called, Joe we Esther called, director of Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, which is one of my favorite movies ever. And Memoria. And Memoria, which I like a lot, and uh, Cemetery of Splendor, which I like actually better than I like Memoria. Mm. Uh, and I even saw Ashes, which was on movie not very long ago, his uh, short film, uh, which I really enjoyed. And what I like about We Esther Call is his interest not only in slow cinema and the sort of spiritual integration of a technological world, which is part of what's going on in a lot of these films, uh, the way in which, again, mythologies and folklores and spiritualities seem to continue to impinge upon what's otherwise day-to-day sort of regular life that kind of stuff, but also his just interested interest in the medium of cinema itself, the way yeah. in which he plays with style and uh, uh, still photography, a la, la, la Jetty for a sequence in Uncle Boon Me, or the sort of uh, 8mm, 16mm uh, regular film stock he uses for Ashes, or the ways in which he plays with editing and time, and uh, even soundscape design, especially in In Memoriam. I, I really, really sort of, I'm, I'm fascinated with his fascination with just all the pieces of the train set. Yeah. And, that, and he keeps playing with them to the end of less of a blockbuster kind of cinema, which is what you see with a lot of filmmakers who are interested in the form in that way, but more, again, in the sort of meditative cinema uh, there. And so We Esther Call for Me comes in uh, from Thailand, comes in for me at number eight. So moving on to number seven. What's the number seventh best director for you, Mr. Arthur Gordon? Uh, well, um, yeah, I promise at some point it's going to get serious. Uh, <laughs> I don't see why it's, I, I it's don't been know. serious so far. Has it been? Yeah. I, maybe. Um, my number seven, is that where we're uh-huh. at? You said, yeah, my number seven. Uh, look, I'm a simple guy. I like simple things like sassy montage editing, um, silly boys hanging out, trying to understand, uh, what best friends are. And so at number seven, uh, is the one and only Edgar Wright. Yeah, man, he was considered by me a yeah. lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. Top 20. Just, can I tell you something? What? Last night in Soho really took him out of the top 10. I feel bad, but I watched it and that's what really kind of confirmed it. Interesting. I, I we mean, had opposite reactions. Yeah. I mean, the story whiffs, I do think the third act whiffs, but just so well made. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That, that I can't dance deny scene. That. Yeah, that that dance scene, because <laughs> yeah. uh, I was watching the behind the scenes stuff that they were doing. I mean, and that's, you know, I mean, a lot of that's right, but it's also his cinematographer, his DP and uh, his, editor. His, his editor and his actors. I mean, that's part of being a great filmmaker, yeah. though, is assembling, assembling a team. team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think mostly navigates tone. I just a narrative like I don't know, you know, where that movie goes wrong. Mostly, I think, in some of the narrative choices it makes and thematically how that kind of resolves. Uh, but, man, it's so good pretty to look at and so well made 
Uh, and that was really the thing, you know, as I was watching it and I was kind of watching some of the behind the scenes stuff on it and just really in awe of how that came together the way it did. And there's just another in a number, you know, uh, Scott Pilgrim still just slaps. It's so fun. It's so funny. So sharp. Uh, you know, hot fuzz, obviously Shaun of the dead, two big ones for me. Um, yeah, really introducing me to, uh, Edgar Wright as well. And the way in which he uses that sort of guy, Richie fast edit montage, in a comic way, mm-hmm. uh, well, you know, which is so clever. Yeah, he doesn't get lost in like Tarantino pastiche of pastiche. You know what yeah. I mean? Like Guy Ritchie gets so kind of sucked into the the tide uh, or the the wake of the Tarantino boat, and yeah. Edgar Wright's really able to carve out his own lane. Yeah, I, I think it's just really clever. You know, using you know, Shaun of the Dead's kind of the the big example of this is using that high octane editing that Guy Ritchie's so known for to do. Teeth brushing mm-hmm. right. or chores, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to really kind of take the piss on it, I think is a lot of fun. And the energy kind of carries over. I think Baby Driver works, man. man yeah. I think that action musical movie thing works very well. Uh, unfortunate casting decisions aside. Uh, and so I, I think that movie's still a lot of fun. And I'm, you know, he's one I'm going to be excited to see what happens next. Totally. And, you know, back and forth when I was, you know, younger. I was always a little more hot fuzz than Shaun of the Dead, but I think I always come up Shaun of the Dead as as being maybe the definitive. And if you're not really into zombies, I think Scott Pilgrim mm-hmm. is, is where you go in on Sex the Bomb reunion tour. I want that sequel. <laughs> yeah, I bought that soundtrack. That movie was big for me. Yeah. yeah. So Edgar Wright. Very good, very good. What comes in at number seven for you, Dalton? Well, much like my previous filmmaker, I'm not I am sadly not really interested in what they do next. You know, the, the, the best days, the best days are behind the us. The sun has set. Yeah. They just stayed too long at the party. They stayed too long at the party. They mm. really did. But this is God. Dalton's previous favorite director's list. <laughs> but God, when the highs are high. And, and so we've talked about directors as producers. This is somebody that really has done a lot as a producer, both in film and television, to, to try and elevate other voices, or, or at the very least, just like put their sort of idiosyncrasies elsewhere in media and, and try to help, you know, the tone that they like kind of rise to the surface. It's Sam Raimi. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, I, look, do we have to ignore Oz the Great and Powerful and Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness? Yeah, we have yeah, to just... Yes, we do. Jettison that shit right out of here. Let's just pretend the filmography stops at Drag Me to Hell, and holy shit, what a filmography it is. Evil Dead to Drag Me to Hell. Uh, I do have to acknowledge my blind spots. I haven't seen Crime Wave, which I know he's kind of written off anyway. I haven't seen For Love of the Game. Mm. Oh, uh, I love For the Love of the Game. Well, I know a lot of people do. I know baseball heads love that one, and that's why he made it, I think, as I recall. I love when he pitches that fastball right through Keith David's chest. <laughs> <laughs> locks out the umpire. Uh, but it's John C. Riley, actually. <laughs> uh, I think those are the... Yeah, those are the only blind spots for me on his his uh, narrative features, though. Uh, God, where do, where do you even start? I mean, obviously, you've got the Evil Dead trilogy, which is sort of incredible a watershed moment for horror filmmaking uh as it goes from indie schlock schlock shock fest to ray harryhausen slapstick three stooges python yeah yeah homage three totally different films that are all on a kind of a continuum of insanity but all offer something unique and fun and interesting and just such visual flair just like re- like what kind of crazy bullshit can we do with this camera and you you know we're talking about 
uh, a very active kinetic filmmaker early in the mm-hmm. filmography, doing shit that is like making Gene Hackman insane on The Quick and the Dead. Like, you've got this old school guy who just does not get it at all. <laughs> He's just like, look, dude, you're going to have to trust me on this one. And I, I don't know, he gets into this sort of more restrained period of his career where he does the gift and a simple plan and is really trying to figure out like, who am I as a filmmaker and then loses 10 years of his life, uh, reinventing blockbuster filmmaking and ruining cinema forever. Uh, <laughs> wow. But boy, is Spider-Man two. Such I'm not, a, I'm not going to put that on his shoulders. Uh, it's not his fault. I didn't say it was his fault. <laughs> okay. I just said he's part of it. Oh. You know, he's part of a larger thing. That's problem. Not, exactly. Yeah. It's not his fault. And he made Spider-Man too. So you know what? <laughs> it's okay. allowed to be part of the problem. Yeah. There's there's only so many good superheroes. Entirely chewed up by the machine. There's, yeah, there's only so many good superhero movies, and he's got three of them. Uh, yeah, I'm including Spider-Man three. That's a weird movie. There's not enough weird superhero movies. Weird is enough to be good. What's the sometimes. third? What's the, what, what do you Did mean? You say three? Yeah, Spider-Man one through three. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know if we were keeping Darkman on the list. Oh, God. You're right. Well, yeah. Let's go ahead and say four. Darkman, yeah. Yeah. I, well, you know, I think of Darkman as its own thing because it's not based on an existing character and it's very much not trying to be a superhero. It's much more of the universal horror story. Uh, and, and yeah, he becomes a kind of a superhero by the end of the film, but it definitely is doing its own sort of thing. But you can see the fingerprints from Darkman in Spider Man, which is what mm-hmm. makes the Spider Man trilogy so special, is he is, he sees the superhero is a sad, tragic, tortured figure. And that is like really where the juice is with Spike. I've been saying that a lot this episode, but that's juices. Yeah. We're talking about juice, baby. A lot, a lot of Who's juice. got the squeeze. <laughs> Who's got the Bronco. <laughs> oh, oh man. I had to, I haven't seen enough, uh, Jane, Jane Campion films. We did spend a lot of time talking about Bronco Henry though. If I had seen, <laughs> if I had seen more Jane Campion films, uh, it's a different direction. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, uh, yeah, I just really love this guy. I say, start with the quick and the dead. That's my personal favorite. Cause I love, call. I love cowboy bullshit. Like, and again, it's a Western that says, you know what the best part of Western is, is the quick draw duels. Right. <laughs> we just well, made a movie. Let's focus that, on that. Yeah, you're yeah. not just wrong. focus on what's the best part of Western. That's you're, why we're all here. And that's, that's right. a really fun one in his career because, you know, he kind of is gun for hire on that one. You know, Sharon Stone, like, says, you, Raimi, are who I want for my blank check. That's what's kind of interesting about that film. And he's got, you know, the screenwriter who really only does a couple of, I think Quick and the Dead's like his biggest screenwriting credit. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of an interesting note in the filmography. It's it's him as Gun for Hire making a film that is like so much his that he has to kind of take his foot off the gas a little bit for the next couple of movies because it is so kind of anarchic and uh, kinetic in, in the framing and then in, in the uh, the camera moves. Uh, that's so that's where I say you start. Dustin, who's number seven for you? Well, speaking of juiciness, yeah. and uh, number seven for me, we go to the country of Canada and their Maple Leafs and David Cronenberg. Yeah, mm. speaking of wet filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs> very, very juicy movies. Um, they, and what's great about Cronenberg is there are two distinct periods that are equally good for completely different reasons. I mean, that's what got me jacked about Raimi, right? Yeah. He's got so many different eras. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Cronenberg has got kind of really distinct phases yeah and so you know you can think about that body horror era well you can think about independent era back in the 70s exactly. with rabid and that, those those films mm-hmm. but then the sort of bigger budget 80s horror films with your your flies and and well and even uh videodrome mm-hmm. to lesser extent is a, it's a horror movie but it's a different kind of horror movie and then moving forward sort of crash post existence he moves into this uh, sort of 
art film period, even though it's still very, very fun and very, very sort of uh, crowd-pleasing. You look at something like A History of Violence and Eastern Promises. Which are like super accessible crime, action crime thrillers. Right. But they're still Cronenberg movies. They're Cronenberg yeah. movies. And then you move into Cosmopolis or, uh, uh, you know, uh, A Dangerous Method and even the, the the recent Crimes of the Future, which is sort of a return to form of him, uh, of his going back into body horror. I just, I, I, I love his mind. I love the way he approaches things. I even like his acting acting turns he's got a great little appearance in nightbreed that we've talked about before he's also got an appearance in one of the friday the 13th but i forget which one off the top of my head now uh for just a moment maybe it's part six i feel like it's six but uh nonetheless uh cronenberg is just a fascinating filmmaker he's got a fascinating sort of psychoanalytical uh psychosexual mind and i uh, love those movies a lot uh goldblum Gina Davis in the fly is probably a great place to go. But I also really love Naked Lunch with uh, Peter Weller of Robocop fame. Speaking of another mm. body horror director who did make the list, uh, Verhoeven of that era, uh, that there's something really, really fascinating uh, about that adaptation of you see this sort of avant garde proclivity, but it's always very, very commercial in the way that he approaches it. So I really love David Cronenberg a lot. I assume he's not on either list. So. No, but a filmmaker I do like quite a bit. So there you go. That's number seven from O Canada. Uh, did you say where you would start? Uh, I, w- I would. S- if I were going to send you people, history of violence. Go watch history of violence first. Just, yeah, that's fair. And then pull the rug. And then just pull the rug. And then just you know all the rest of it. What What do you follow here? You're like, hey, you've never seen Cronenberg. Watch history of violence because it's great. And then, and then watch what do you follow that up with? Videodrome because <laughs> I'm a monster. <laughs> What a dramatic <laughs> shifting of the guard. Yeah. Uh, so uh, number six is where we go next. Arthur, what's number six for you? Hey, I'm finally going international. Are uh, you? Even though this director's primarily worked in English the last several years of his career. I think I know who you're picking. Yeah, probably. Um, uh, when I think dark and weird, uh, I, I want dark and weird, and I like twisted fairy tales and twisted fantasy and... You know, uh, that's probably why his uh, uh, second to last movie didn't work quite as well for me, because I really wanted the entire thing set at his weirdo carnival, and that's Guillermo del Toro. Um, We'll hear from him again. Yeah, I figured. Uh, Maybe even three times. (laughs) (laughs) The Triple Um, Crown again. I I mean, I don't know how, you know, he's just, again, we're talking riffers and riffies. He's in that kind of riffy. I mean, very much uh, appreciative and a student of Hitchcock and the mm-hmm. old, yeah, the old directors and the classic directors, and he understands the styles and the forms, and he gets all that. But he's also got this sort of, you know, sad child in the corner who likes spoopy stories, uh, which is something I very much uh, connect with and, and understand. And so, you know, getting into something like Hellboy and just seeing this world open up, and then be able to follow that into something like Pan's Labyrinth, and and then dive deeper into that if I want to see something like Kronos or Devil's Backbone, I can. Um, and then to see him kind of carry on with something like Crimson Peak, which you know got a little bit I, derision, but I love. I like that movie. A lot. I, I really I like do like Crimson Peak. Uh, I, we came out of that press screening, and I couldn't. I, I have vivid memories of walking out of that, just like shouting about how good yeah. it was. I mean, it has all that. You know, it's a great homage to something like Rebecca, but it also has a little bit of Devil's Backbone with the presentation mm-hmm. of these other world entities. And I think you know that stuff is so cool how it all kind of culminates in that way. Uh, I, I really like Shape of Water, you know, the, the, the quote, safe choice that year for our Academy Award, uh, which is so funny to think about, you know, in hindsight. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm always interested to see what he does next. He makes, I think, fascinating, interesting choices uh, with characters that are just 
easy to love and follow and stay with. And his work in animation, too, you know. I well, mean, yeah. his recent award-winning uh, turn with Pinocchio, Pinocchio. But even as a producer, you know, he's done some work on the Kung Fu Pandas. He did some yeah. production work on the Hobbit movie. I mean, he's just... Man, he makes some good, interesting choices. The yeah. things that his name gets attached to are just fun. Yeah, usually worth seeking out. Well, talk about a, out. a director who's interesting entering a new phase. Like, he's out here being like, I'll never work in live action again. He's like, Mr. I support animation. and want to make sure, like, this form stays vital yeah really interested mm-hmm. so interesting i think uh, an important voice i think maybe the, the best partnering decision netflix has made of all of their contract deals they've signed mm-hmm. i don't know of anybody who's had maybe a better uh return on interest uh in investment than guillermo del toro who i just love i'm fascinated by I, I can't wait to see what he does next when he does whatever next and what he attaches his name to next uh because he is endlessly fascinating to me who where, where do you start on? Where do I start? Or where do you tell people to start? With Guillermo del Toro? Man. Um, maybe Hellboy, mm-hmm. especially if they're, you know, mar- like, you know, blockbuster MCU type people. I think that's a good place to start. Um, Pan's Labyrinth is always good, I yeah. think. But I, I mean, you don't want to scare. I mean, obviously, subtitles scare off a lot of people. I like scaring people. So I think, uh, inter- you know, I think domestic might be a little easier to get people into. Sure. Even Nightmare Alley might hook some people. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested to know how that one plays with a regular movie-going audience. Me too. But, yeah, I think Hellboy. All right, so number six for you, Dalton. Well, this filmmaker does have some some things in common with GDT, and that they both understand subtlety is for fucking cowards. <laughs> <laughs> I talk a lot on this show about how I, I like a, a didactic filmmaker. This is the didactic filmmaker. Oh, yeah. That's Spike fucking Lee. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good uh, call. Well, and, and this is, you know... The top you, 15 guy for me. Yeah, I get it. And, and you, you mentioned, you know, like, the um, the riffy versus who they're riffing on. Like, this, he, I mean, in... Uh, um, oh, my God. My, I have a huge brain fart right now. Uh, Do the Right Thing, you have this, like, direct, overt reference to Night of the Hunter. Like, it is, like... Rado Rahim is, like, does the lines from uh, Robert Mitchum's, like brother love brother hate like it's it's right there this is a student of film history Mm -hmm. and like what i think is so interesting about him is like he goes to film school and gets mad (laughs) about film history and is like quit making us watch birth of a nation what the fuck is wrong with you people Mm -hmm. and like comes out uh, this like vital filmmaker and invents a style you know you're talking about being a riffy and uh, you know riffer Mm. and he does riff but i mean he invents a style i mean there's so much stuff that you think of that spike the the floating tracking shot right like that's kind of like one of his go-to's michael jordan tennis shoe commercials man man well and this is why he doesn't crack the top five right like in his i love him he he works and he'll do anything for money and i respect that at some level but like he also made the nypd video or whatever like he makes see that this is from a few years ago so he makes some weird choices like and he makes a lot of very commercial like you know taking care of the family you know building the hot tub choices which like I get and a deep filmography too. Like if if you start thinking about concert docs and and just other you know when the levees broke or you know other documentaries like a really deep bench like a really interesting guy as far mm-hmm. as like using his success as a, a director to kind of open up different avenues. Um, I even like uh, you know speaking of concert docs, his American Utopia that he did with uh, David Byrne. Mm, uh, that's seen it. Really fun. I like David Byrne though too. Yeah, that, that they're that's a really fun one. But you know for me it's it's the narrative fiction that gets him on the list, obviously. Uh, we are 
are big fans of He Got Game here at this show. Um, and for me, that's like one of the most important sports films ever made. I, I really love that film. Uh, I even like Inside Man, though. That's like one of my favorite heist movies. That, that was one of the first ones to get me into Spike, truly. Uh, I, I didn't even, you know, and it's it, it's not the most spike at surface level, but then Nazi gold shows up. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, no, this is a Spike Lee movie. Yep. Nope, nope, this is still, he's still doing his thing. Uh, yeah, just such an interesting filmmaker, even when he's not working from his own stuff. You know, obviously he's got some duds. He's got the old boy remake, which I'll probably never get around to seeing. No offense, Spike. I haven't seen it. Uh, I'm much more invested in rewatching old boy uh, than, than watching an odd remake. But, uh, you know, I appreciate, like, He's not afraid to make weird choices. And speaking of film team filmmakers who've teamed up with Netflix, like late in his career teams up with them and mm-hmm. does some like really great another streamers, you know, does Chirac for Amazon, does uh Defy Bloods for Netflix, and like both of those are as good as anything else early in his career. Mm-hmm. I think those are really I mean that we missteps aside, like that really Greek powerful. chorus thing of Chirac. I like is great. I think it's cool, man. Yeah. I know it doesn't work for everybody, but I dig it. I like it. And again, like again, talking about people who've stayed relevant and essential in their their later period work, Black Klansman, like not you know, this is something that again, Jordan Peele working as a producer says, Who do we get for this? We get Spike when he realizes he's not gonna make it. And God, what a film. Mm-hmm. That that is about a time and a place, and yet is about how times and places are really a, very rarely ever relevant to what is actually happening because some things are sort of ephemeral and always something you have to fight and be leery of. Uh, I say, of course, you start with do the right thing. Um, you know, is, is it boring to say he's never topped that? Probably. Probably is boring if you just because say that. it's accurate, but you know, exactly. Like, I don't think he would argue with that. I think he would look back at that film and say, I really did break my foot off in that one. Because, wow. I'm a big fan of one of his Lee Spike Lee movies in terms of style, and that's Malcolm X with Denzel. Well, I that's really the, like Malcolm X. The biggest blind spot for me. Oh, and yeah. The one that I really want. It's a three plus it's hour movie. I couldn't get to it in my research, like mm-hmm. for, for this, this episode. I really wanted to. Uh, that, Crooklyn, Bamboozled and even Summer of Sam. I think those are the ones that I most want to get to mm-hmm. uh, that, that I haven't seen. Uh, but yeah, I mean, even like 25th Hour, which is, you know, kind of another one that's less of a Spike movie, but is also very much a lot of direct addresses to camera, the classic floating stuff. Man, that's, talking about essential American films, that's the mm-hmm. post 9-11 movie. Yeah. Is 25th Hour, man. Uh, who's at number six for you, Dustin? Number six for me, uh, we go from Canada to uh, colonizer of Canada, France, and Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, I don't know. I just the Fresh New Wave, big deal anyway. Yeah. I li- and I like Godard's movies. I think he's he's consistently an interesting director. Mm-hmm. And you know, we talk a lot about his New Wave stuff, and I love Breathless, and I love uh, Made in USA, and you know, Masculine Feminine, and you know, Viva Saviv, and those movies are all sort of like part of like a little movement there. But I like. 80s Godard. I like it when he makes his weird detective movies. I like 90s Godard when he makes this uh, sort of strange zoo story with Gerard Depardieu. I like a super weird 2010s Godard when he gets experimental with film socialism or with uh, image book or my favorite of the three, Goodbye to Language. And so, I, I, I again, a lot of periods in this mm-hmm. filmmaker's filmography, but he's Again, consistently interested in the medium. He is consistently interested in being an iconoclast. He's consistently interested in sticking a hot French fry in everybody's eyeball. 
And that kind of provocateur kind of filmmaking is just good times. And uh, it's not just like he's like... That's the shit that gets Spike on my list. Yeah, Yeah, I get it. It's not just like this sort of teenage punk rock kind of thing where it's like, yeah, forget you. You're not my real dad. It's it's always thoughtful, intellectual, Mm -hmm. and insightful as he does that stuff. And so that's what I really, really like about Godard. And so he's one of those sort of like grapes of cinema that I think is truly kind of great because he's always a maverick. He's always radical, uh, no matter what. And he's, he's radical to himself even. Mm. And, uh, that's, that's unusual to find in a filmmaker. So for me, Godard, if you're going to watch Godard, you start with, I mean, I guess you got to start with breathless, but then watch films. So, uh, no, watch goodbye to the language. Watch Goodbye to Language. That's what I would say next. And uh, just and then just uh, dive somewhere in the middle. Detective, maybe, from the 80s. So that's my recommends for that. That's number six for all of us. We move on to number five. We're halfway through the list, fellas. Number five for you, Arthur. What do you say? We need to get this boat speeding up is what we need to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> crank, crank this up. Uh, we're trying I to do it. We're trying to go get some mojitos. We got to get this go so, fast boat. Somebody moving. asked me if I want to do something to seven to nine. I said, I don't think I'll be making. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had similar ideas. Um, man, uh, my number five is one who I kind of wrestled with if he would be on the list or not. Um, he probably has the second longest filmography, uh, time span on my list. Um, and he is arguably one of the f- most influential direct American directors of all time. And so I, you know, didn't know if he would land here or not, but I, I can't not put him on here. Cause I, I can just connect with his movies way too often. And it's Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. I mean, it's, you know, I was listening to an interview with him on smart list of, few days ago a few weeks now when you're listening to this but you know talking about his kind of legacy and what he's done it's you know it's weird to think about being alive while he's still working you know it's easy to look back on Ford or Hitchcock and you know Hawks and all these other people who shaped cinema and shaped pop culture in in seminal ways um but there's you know that kind of element of they were gone before I got here. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be living while Spielberg's living and working and still cooking, you know, I mean, he's been working for five decades now, uh, almost six, I think, you know, and just still cooking, you know, he's still mm-hmm. putting out stuff. That's interesting, entertaining. I'm just put out one of maybe his most vital films. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, Fableman's is incredible. Um, somebody gets autobiographical that. that late in their career and it's still like, it's Hidden. powerful. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I tell you what, Spielberg did not make my list. And I don't even... <sighs> he wasn't okay. even in contention for me. And yet, like, his inclusion is, like, such an obvious, like, yeah, of course. Well, the, the thing with Spielberg, I think of Spielberg as less a director and more of a storyteller. He's he's my one of my favorite storytellers. He tells my favorite kinds of stories. And he tells those stories really, really, really well for me. But I, I don't think of him in terms of direction. That much. I don't. I mean, you if know you what I mean? talk yeah, about he's the like stories, one of the blocking guy. Yeah, I was gonna right, say. Yeah. I mean, his yeah, blocking, his storyboarding. Man, I mean, yeah, that's super good. What he does, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I've seen video of him on set, just you know, walking through the set for the first time, be like, okay, here's where we're gonna go here, 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 and here. You know, he's just visualizing it, like no. But I think you do get caught up in the Steven Spielberg of it all, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I mean, he he's one of the great directors. I yeah. think. Um, he gets lost in that, you know, I think it's almost a conversation, is he an auteur or not, right? Is, yeah. is that weird question, but 
he's as much of a notor as I think anybody else is. Sure. Uh, if we want to throw out that label, especially a Hitchcock, I think, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's definitely got his his threads. He's got his trends. He's, you know, a master storyteller. I think he meets a lot of those well, he's got a definitional criteria if we he's look got his at partners, Saris. Right? Yeah. John Williams, Tony Kushner. Yeah. Like, he's got these people he worked with time and again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it, it is an interesting place for him, though. And I think it's maybe part of just growing up with, I mean, but he's also probably the last uh, outside of maybe a couple of young people now, director of the, above the title that people know. Mm-hmm. A lot of time, you know, people don't know directors. They don't care. Common audiences, mm-hmm. general mm-hmm. audiences, but they know Spielberg because of his impact and relevancy in showing up in media and pop culture and the way he's referenced. And so, uh, you know, with that being said, he's also made some of my favorite movies of all time, you know, Jurassic park and catch me if you can. And I just think he's interesting. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be curious to see what he does next. And he's one of those, you know, directors who even his lesser work is still usually operating at a level higher than a lot of mm-hmm. mid tier directors, best stuff. So Spielberg, Yeah, absolutely. Love Spielberg. All right, number five for you, Dalton. Let me, come with me real quick. Go on a journey with me. And Dustin, this won't be hard for you because you've been at International. But I say, let's climb that one-inch tall barrier of subtitles. Let me hand you this director bong and you take a big old powerful rip from it and we talk about bong, June, ho. He sees further than we do. He simply does. And binds us with his ancient logics. You said it, man. (laughs) You said it. Not wrong. Uh, Yeah, talk about a guy. He's going to show up again. He's just, yeah. Well, he's who I thought you were talking about when you were referencing GDT earlier. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, what a filmography. And, And talking about somebody who's been so successful at like taking what they were doing in their their national cinema and their their home country becoming a big international name and staying true to like what they were already doing staying true to like the tone and the themes but also the language like he's still like even still his english in language movies he's still got a bunch of korean in there like he mm-hmm. makes sure korean actors are working and like make sure that like he's still i'm not sure about crew i haven't didn't do that research but like it's it's interesting to me like he's he's still like is trying to say, no, like I am a Korean filmmaker and that is like part of the identity of the film. That is part of like what I'm working with. Like, and yet the way in which he like, he has this big international success with pair or uh, with Snowpiercer and Okja goes back to Korea, makes parasite and says like, no, this is for everybody. Like you don't have to be from where I'm from to understand this film. Cause we're living mm-hmm. under the same conditions globally. Like you understand this because I, because I see further than you. <laughs> I can <laughs> yes. see that you are living under the same conditions that I'm living under. I'm trying to cultivate class consciousness in people. Uh, which, you know, the more successful he gets as a filmmaker, the more of a, a moneyed name he becomes. I'm curious where the, the filmography goes from there. Uh, mm-hmm. But we're just now entering, like, the most exciting period of his filmography. You know, he's got that that gold, that, that delicious, delicious gold from 2019. He's ready, gearing up with Mickey 17, with one of the most exciting filmmaker or uh, one actors. of the most exciting actors of his generation. Yeah. With, with Pattinson. Like I can't wait to see what those two do together. I know. I mean, look what he did with somebody like Gyllenhaal and Oakja, just letting mm-hmm. and, and what he's done with Tilda Swinton uh, in his collaborations with her. He really gets the most out of his English language speaking actors, but I mean, God, his, his team ups with Song Kang Ho, I mean, that shit is just legendary mm-hmm. dude. Uh, whether it's host or Snowpiercer uh, or, um, JSA. I'm sorry, that's Park Chan Wook. Uh, I'm listening to Blank, Blank Checks covering Park Chan Wook right now. It's, memories of Murder, though. Yeah, Memories of Murder. God, is what I was thinking of. And, oh my God, that the performance in that movie, dude. I mean, really talk about that's that's the that's 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 the Scorsese De Niro sauce. That's mm-hmm. 
that's oh boy when those two are cooking in the kitchen together i'm you know i'm gonna be there on day one uh yeah bong joon ho what a, what a filmmaker uh and and, and again hitchcockian right mm-hmm. like we're talking about yeah riffies he is kind of one of the ultimate riffies and is yet like really carving out his own yeah. lane and is very make, making like specific things and it's not all is it all about imperialism and colonialism and capitalism yeah pretty much well everything is everything it? is exactly yeah. and like even when he's not his doing other stuff within the film like that is that temperature is is set and is like is in the background uh, i say start with snowpiercer um, it's Good kind call. of the one that got me into the filmography. Honestly, I think it's just like a fun, exciting sci-fi action film uh, that is still like doing a lot of the stuff that he likes to do. Uh, or Okja, just because of its accessibility. Like you mm-hmm. can steal a Netflix subscription. Uh, yeah, check that one out. What about you, Dustin? Number five, we go back to Mexico as we've already been and Guillermo del Toro. Uh, so yeah, GDT uh, for me, he's just no- ranked number five. So it was just a question of where we throw him in the numbers. Uh, everything Arthur said is absolutely correct. Uh, and again, mentioning his work as a producer as well, mm-hmm. uh, The Orphanage, uh, what J.A. Bayonia, I believe, yeah. is a director on that one. And uh, it's, it's very much El- a del Torian movie, but it's not his. And the way in which he's able to sort of, again, pick those projects, uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, you know, Mama, Mama, right? yeah. yeah, these sort of lesser works, they're all excellent and they're all again playing in this world of horror. I love his fascination with sort of putrescence and bugs. I love just again the sort of uh, classic Hollywood homage and love letters that he tends to write. And I and I even enjoy the work he does just with sort of neon kind of lighting and uh, that kind of experience with a movie like The Strain or Pacific Rim, where he's able to sort of do those in more of a science fiction horror kind of. Uh, situation well science fiction horror in both cases but more science fiction with pacific rim mm-hmm. and more horror with the sake of the strain but sort of play with both of those things which are sort of outside his standard genres of working and so yeah uh guillermo del toro is for me just one of the greats and uh, so he's number five for me moving on to number four what's number four for you arthur uh, it is the previously aforementioned bong joon ho nice um nice. yeah I, I mean just somebody I really hadn't, I mean, I haven't heard of, I had heard of the host, I had heard of Snowpiercer, but never gotten around to him, uh, you know, and, and then to see Parasite and then to be kind of swept away by Parasite and then introduced into a whole new world, you know, I hadn't really uh, seen much from South Korea, I, I hadn't seen much, you know, outside, uh, you know, I mean, outside of Parasite and, and part I had seen maybe just Stoker. Mm-hmm. That was really my only familiarity with Park. I'm more of a Park than I am a... Bong. Yeah, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I just think it made me think of the Park movie. I'm an Andrew, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, but he really, I mean, it really does kind of open... Well, I, I think I hold him in high regard because it did open up this gate into the work of Song Kang-ho, who, you know, we did that marathon. We got to explore his filmography outside of working with just uh bong joon ho and so to kind of open that up to open up south korean film to see this whole other cinema that has a lot of similarity to ours because a lot of the same concerns a lot of the same issues going on uh, under capitalism um but also a filmmaker who's just definitely navigating tone Mm. in something like memory of a murder which has these just knockout punch funny moments to just stomach dropping uh dramatic 
elements that take place over the span of yeah. two hours. And, I'm glad you bring that up, though, because he is such yeah. a funny filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, Parasite's got some hilarious moments in it. Yeah, And then just absolute tragedy. Yeah. And he navigates it so well without missing a beat, and that's so hard to do. And, you know, a lot of people talk about the director's job is tone and, and navigating that and managing it. And I don't know there's anybody that does it any better than Bong Joon-ho and being able to tell these films that aren't necessarily laden into genre. I mean, obviously you have some sci-fi with the host or with Snowpiercer, but it's also comedy. It's also adventure. It's also action. It's also drama. Uh, and so he's able to capture all of this in these little snow globe moments and of films. Uh, and so I'm very interested to see, you know, what he does next. I've, I've got a couple of blind spots, uh, you start with Snowpiercer. I yeah, may start with Parasite. I, yeah. you, know, I've, I've you know, I think it's... You seen it with yeah. some general audience friends. They really dug it. And I think it is able to kind of lure you in so that when that kind of gear switch happens, you're very invested in what takes place next. Uh, uh, are the blind spots, Barking Dogs, Never Bite, and Mother for yep. you as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we yeah. got to get to those. And, so, and he's got a ton of short films, too. Yeah. So, I mean, he's been working, what... Thirty years, thirty years, yeah, thereabout, yeah. I mean him and yeah. I mean him and Park are contemporaries yeah. of each other, yeah. pretty much. And I, you know, I like Park, uh, but I just you know I haven't really ever connected with any of his stuff the same way. So I know people love Park. I mean, that's you know, he, the, uh, and there's the a two few blinds. I mean, I've seen the Vengeance stuff, which I've is fine. Seen two of three of those. Yeah, two out of three of those. Um, I, I like JSA quite a bit, JSA's and I like cool. Stoker a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm in love with Decision to Leave. Uh, oh, that's one good. Of, maybe yeah. one of my favorite movies, honestly. That, that, I mean, yeah, that's why I'm Team Park. But yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it's not like I got to pick one over the other. I love Bong Joon Ho. They're both but, great uh, entryways into Korean cinema. Yeah, but I would yeah. rank Park ahead of Bong for me. Sure. But I, yeah, but I like. I think it's a preference thing. Yeah, you know, Bong's just had a few more hits for me than mm-hmm. you know Park. All right, moving on. Then what is your number four, Dalton? Well, finally, my happy little ass who loves to be with the current cultural zeitgeist is going to talk about one of the classical Hollywood filmmakers. Uh, and, and much like my selection of Charles Lawton, this person's got a lot more films than Charles Lawton, but it is just sort of a no brainer to put this guy on the list. It's Billy Wilder. Uh, now uh, the apartment is sort of the big blind spot for me. It's good. Uh, I know. Yeah, that's what I hear. Um, but I mean, he's got so many films, but for me, it's, it comes down to Ace in the Hole, Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, and Some Like It Hot. I mean, yep. holy shit. Yep. Yeah. Those are the four that I've, I've seen and they're all like five. They're right all there. fives. Yeah. yeah. I, they're crazy good. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense that this dude is like always operating at that high of a level. Uh, what are some other ones that are worth mentioning? I, I know people like Stalag 17. I know that people are into that. Uh, I know people love the apartment and that's, that's mm-hmm. kind of why it's the one that I'm most ready to get caught up with. Uh, Dalek 17 I saw really young, and I yeah. really just laughed at it a lot. I thought it was crazy how funny it was, even for a child. That's very funny. Uh, Lost Weekend, kind of another big blind spot for me. I uh, wish that in a class. It is not a good time, but a good movie. Yeah. I, I just think he's... he's woof. He understood the American character in a really, really interesting way, especially with stuff like Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard. Like... He and Sunset Boulevard is such an awesome movie, like in terms of like Hollywood history is like a film that is like aware of Hollywood history and is like commenting on it and is still like super accessible. If you don't understand like the silent film references being made, it is very accessible because it is still 
both of those films, uh, Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard, are like very much concerned with American concerns. Uh, if you haven't, if you're not following the Movie Mindset podcast that their uh, Will Miniker from Chapo Trap House is doing, really great episode on Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity as sort of these two noirs that are really like uh, diagnosing serious problems mm-hmm. in the American character. And uh, yeah, I just what a great filmmaker. Um, kind of an obvious pick, obviously, and again, one that I have a ton of blind spots for. But mm-hmm. as soon as I put him on the list, I couldn't, I couldn't pull him off. Like I, mm-hmm. I kept trying to get him off because I had, I had too many. I kept trying to get Billy Wilder off. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> uh, I just like there's so many blind spots that mm-hmm. I, I felt like I, I couldn't justify putting him on the list. But I, yeah, every time I tried to replace him with somebody, I was like, I can't. What am I gonna do? Take him off of my top ten? Yeah, it's just really really good dude i mean there's a reason people still talk about him he's i mean he was super on my short list and that was the kind of the blind spotting was the thing that kept him yeah from get getting that. on there just because i mean i've seen the ones you've mentioned i've seen five graves to cairo i've seen sabrina and I, I mean i love sabrina quite a bit as well um but i didn't know but i mean yeah i was close to doing it for sunset boulevard alone right yeah. i mean he's it's one of those well one of and those i incredible movies yeah. i think the one i would say you start with and it's one that i remember when we first started hanging out was one that you recommended to me it's ace in the hole mm-hmm. i think that's a really fun yeah. one to start with yeah or uh, some like it hot i mean some like it hot is yeah, a blast that's, true. that's just man. funny it is a blast yeah. Yeah, yeah it's very fun and like boy does it actually age well weirdly yeah 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 i mean that ending would, i mean yeah. yeah it's kind of Shockingly, shockingly progressive yeah. for the yeah. 60s yeah. yeah yeah really cool stuff yep. dustin who's next on the list for you number four is probably my biggest surprise okay as i was thinking about this and this is one of those things where i'm taking the riffer because there are I knew uh, michael bay was gonna get on here somewhere <laughs> <laughs> incorrect uh where uh, a couple of filmmakers i really like but they just don't quite have the total package for me so Roland i, Emmerich. I, I thought <laughs> you're just gonna keep messing with me so i thought a lot about mario bava and i thought a lot about dario argento and then um, I thought a lot about Alejandro Jordowski. You want Mario Luigi? He's and my favorite. <laughs> they all had a baby from Denmark. His name is Nicholas Winding Refn. Nice. Okay. And sure. I love Refn. And I I, re- I watched for the first time the Puffer- Pusher trilogy oh, in nice. preparation for it. Pusher yeah. Two is so good. Oh my gosh, it's so good. And I I love uh, Tom Hardy in Bronson. Obviously, Drive is incredible. And I really like Neon Demon and Only God Forgives. I know a lot of people give a lot of hate to both of those movies, but uh, the style is just there for me. And I even watched an episode and a half of uh, Too Old to Die Young. Oh yeah, and With Miles I like Teller. it. I like it. It's so slow and steady but it's not about that it's a vibes tv series sure uh, which is a weird thing to be doing and uh, i hate everybody in it but i want to keep watching because it's so pretty and it just so works for me cool. and so winning reffin again probably didn't make anybody's list i nah. assume i mean 10 years ago he would have because of drive yeah just i mean and bron i mean bronson yeah. goes hard Bronson's but so good. i just honestly i haven't thought about nicholas winding reffin in probably years he He's, just fell off the planet yeah he did too old that he lost a lot of years to too old to die young and then just kind of yeah, yeah i never got around anything. to neon demon i wanted to Me i just either. didn't get to it i watched like the first 20 minutes and of then it. yeah i just i i honestly i saw you log the pusher trilogy and i was like i forgot all about the director of one of my favorite movies of all time yeah yeah valhalla rising guys 
It's good. It's <laughs> I, don't, I don't people like that one. I, I like it a lot. Mads, man. Mads. Mads is so good. And Mads is really good in Pusher 2. <laughs> I saw oh, you. Pu- he's in Pusher 2? Yeah. Nice. He's in Pusher 1 as well, but he's a side character, and then gotcha. it focuses on him you, for the second one. You logged Valhalla, and I thought it was... Uh... What's the other Viking movie that just came out? Oh, uh, <laughs> the uh, the Robert Eggers one. Yeah, um, yeah, the Northman. <laughs> Northman. I thought I was like, man, Dustin really turned it around on the Northman. I realized it was Valhalla Rising. Yeah. You're logging. Yeah, no, no, I did not. Uh, Only room enough for one Viking movie in this decade. That's right. And it's well, the Valhalla Rising is like the teens. Teens, it? yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's number uh, four for me. Nicholas winning Refn. Number three is where we go next. What's number three we're for in you? We're the top threes. We're the top threes. Man, we really sped through the back half. Let's keep it up. We're, we're, <laughs> we're rocking right along. Uh, this is where the list actually had some weight to it. Uh, the previous seven entries, I was just kind of placing in. Like there wasn't a lot of rhyme or reason to, um, except for maybe Jordan Peele. Uh, but these top three were the ones I think I knew kind of from the onset that they'd be here. And so number three, uh, Dalton's already referenced him once uh, in passing, and that's uh, David Fincher. I mean, nice. talking about, you know, directors who make movies that yeah. I'm very into or my wheelhouse, and Fincher's there. You Top know, 15 I'm, for me, probably. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely always wanting to see what he does next. Top 50 for me, probably, but I like Fincher, okay? No, yeah, that's I mean, fine. Yeah, you're, yeah, well, and you've got, like, a deep bench of international guys to pull from. Yeah, uh, but Fincher just makes movies I'm interested in. You know, I, I like dark i like serial killers i like you know adjacent to spoopy i like suspense i like thrillers uh i think the game is good i think panic room's good man the game is really good yeah you know i, I mean he just makes uh, really fun you know mank is the one thing i didn't get to because it just kind of dropped in the clut of content yeah. uh, and i didn't get around to it i made my wife watch the batman last night yeah. and it made me like fincher more yeah yeah um i What's mean i got to do with fincher? seven Oh, I mean, just the impact, yeah, I think, yeah, of Fincher, duh. right? You know, we'll may talk about him some more next week, I'm sure. But uh, I think that he's just one of those directors that stylistically, he obviously shaped uh, film, uh, you know, following the mid-90s. Uh, I think, you know, he's, you know, him, Tarantino, Kevin Smith were kind of those American 90s directors that everybody wanted to emulate in some way. Mm-hmm. And I think he shaped you know, his work on seven shaped production design for the next two decades. Mm. Uh, you can see its fingerprints even on something like memory of a murder or parasite where that's still kind of, prevalent. or even over in TV with the CSI franchise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. procedural, you know, has a long life thanks to, uh, Fincher's work. And so I, I'm curious to see what he does next. I'm interested in, in what he does. I just enjoy the kind of stories he tells. What's also, your... didn't he, did, is he the one that saved Guillermo del Toro's dad from a kidnapper or was that Cameron? I'm sorry, what? One of them did something wild like, like that. Like fought off a kidnapper? I don't remember the story. There's a weird, dad? I'll have to look it up. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I'll, I'll do that. On that. Well, y'all we, are we talking. We need that tea. Um, what's, uh, your, what's, your, what's your entry pill for Fincher? For Fincher? Yeah, where do you tell people to start? I mean, that's one people are probably familiar with. Girl with but... the drag tattoo. No. <laughs> no. You know what? I think the game. Yeah? It's, okay. You know, it's so lesser scene, but it's so fun. Yeah. Nice. You know, I, like I think a lot of people turn off Panic Room because I, I don't remember that it got a huge critical... It made money, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't but remember. I don't it's kind of forgotten. Really in it. Yeah. And I like Panic case Room. Stew. Baby Case Stew. Um, but... <gasps> that is Case Stew. Yeah. Jared Leto with dreads. Yeah. My entire choice. brain just or fell out. Dreads braids. Um, and then um, yeah. Dwight Yoakam. Yeah. Forrest Whitaker, wild cast on that movie. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. It's good stuff. He's got every one of his movies has an insane yeah. cast. Yeah. Uh, I'd probably go with the game or Gone Girl. Gone Girl's kind of mine. Yeah. I think 
I think I go Gone Girl. Yeah. yeah. That's that's a movie about America, baby. Yeah. So uh, there you go. It's, it's David Finch. All right. Uh, number three for you, Dalton. Number three is the previously mentioned Guillermo del Toro. Yes. He's a pretty big gateway into cinemas for me. You know, mm-hmm. I and I before I even realized that I was like getting into it, you know what I mean? Cause like I see blade two when it comes out as a kid, I, I see uh Hellboy as a kid when it comes out. So like he's, he's becoming a foundational filmmaker for me before I'm even like fully like activated as a movie watcher. And then by the time I am, I'm just like getting really into it. And you know, I, I watch Kronos in college for a Spanish paper and like I'm deeper in and I finally catch up with Pan's labyrinth because of all the hype it had when it came out mm-hmm. Um, maybe a couple of years after it came out. So I'm maybe still in high school when I get to that one for the first time. So I'm just like slowly getting more of the filmography into my veins. Like as I, as I get more into film and like it just like the totality of the work really speaks to me. And I'm with yeah. Arthur, like, you know, I, I, he just wants to sit in the corner with his monsters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't want to see you sit in the corner with your monsters, buddy. I want to, I get it. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's all there. What, what, whatever lane he's in, whether it's, you know, his Spanish language uh, ghost stories or his high, you know, blockbuster, you know, his high budget count blockbuster filmmaking or his sort of more mid-budget American uh, ghost stories. Like, there is still so much of his 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 interests on screen Mm -hmm. you know whether it's a lady that's fucking a fish monster or (laughs) it's a guy being driven to such a low point that he'll eat chickens just to uh have have the applause and have the booze you know he's just an okie with straight teeth (laughs) one all-time great line (laughs) yeah i i don't know i i don't think i can say anything about guillermo you guys haven't already like done a really good job of of laying out well, Arthur can say something about Guillermo that none of us knew. What is that thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So it wasn't Fincher. I was, I think, conflating Fincher's uh, stories with Brad Pitt uh, doing uh, weird stuff. Uh, but it was Jimmy Cameron. Uh, so during the production of 97, this is coming from AnimatedTimes.com. Uh, during the production of 97's Mimic, uh, Del Toro's father, uh, Federico, was kidnapped off the streets of Guadalajara and kept for ransom. Uh, and Jimmy Cameron reached out. Uh, to give him the one million for the ransom, and also uh, recommend a negotiator to help get his dad home safe. See, I really How? wanted to be Jimmy Cameron and Arnie just going after him with a bunch of sawed-off <laughs> shotguns. See, don't you don't even need to go there. Back up to what really happened. James Cameron has a hostage negotiator on standby. <laughs> He had a suggestion ready to go. That is insane. Well, also, you know, in light of recent events, Jimmy Cameron also seemed to have uh, intel uh, ahead of the Navy and many media outlets about the fate of uh, a certain event recently. Submersible, yeah. Yeah. Truly a fascinating, odd man who I'm glad didn't make any of our lists, but... But uh, Maybe he should (laughs) have. I don't know. He's a character. He, yes. And if we're looking for director, like if, if being a character is part of the criteria for making this list, uh, you know, maybe Jim should have gotten more serious consideration. But, you know, Guillermo was a character in his own right, to mm-hmm. keep it on, on theme. Uh, I, you know, I, I like that he's into monsters. I like that he's into clocks. I love his little clockwork bullshit that he does. Yeah. I'm into it. I just, I, I'm, it's goopy and drippy. Uh, he just, Ooh, I'm into his aesthetic, you know, and I'm into his collaborators. He always assembles a good cast. And just like, again, even when it's something like Pacific Rim, he's he's so 
assured of what he's doing that like it, it just feels of a piece with everything else yeah. like it, it all feels cohesive even though it is like very different um i say get in there with you know what the shape of water i, I think it's a fine place to start oscar you know, start with the oscar Absolutely. winner you know you can't go wrong there uh and it's you know all of his movies, not all of his movies, a lot of his movies are interested in, in the forces of fascism and totalitarianism mm-hmm. and, and where that rears its head time and again throughout history and the ways in which that film is about sort of America in the 50s, I think is really interesting uh, and kind of an, an interesting outgrowth of something like Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, Dustin, who's number three for you? Number three for me is one of uh, the riffies from our Guillermo del Toro. So we go to Spain by way of Mexico, by way of France, and that is uh, Louis Bunuel. I, man, uh, Bunuel, uh, fifty de- five-decade career, 50-decade, that's 5,000 years, five-decade career uh, from the 1920s all the way to the 1970s, uh, making films, and uh, continually interesting, uh, able to work in several different uh, modes. You know, you think about those early French uh collaborations with Salvador Dali, like uh, Lodge d'Or and Unchien Andalou, mm-hmm. uh, with his famous razor blade eyeball sequence, uh, which I know, I know, I know. But uh, if you can't watch that one, watch Lodge d'Or, which is about an hour long and a really, really good time. And not only that, uh, you see that his incredible Mexican period when he tries to sort of get movies made in Mexico and he makes like a little short kind of experimental film like Simon of the Desert. But then also uh, one of the most incredible Dickensian uh, poetic realist films, Los Olvidados, The Exterminating Angel is another one yeah, of the that films one, that does that kind of stuff as well. And then uh, my favorite of him is um, The Obscure Object of Desire. Uh, which we talked about in the top 100s episode, so I'll just say more, go back to that and look at it. But his surrealism, but also his work in narrative filmmaking, he's really funny. I really love The Milky Way, which is one of his more obscure films in which uh, a pair of travelers on the Via del Santiago run into historical Christian heretics. Weird. And but a very, very, very good time. So, yeah, Louis Bunuel for me is number three from Spain by way of a handful of other places where he can just get money to make movies. So uh, moving on to number two. What's number two for you, Arthur? Uh, my number two is a bit of a cheat because it's two directors. Um, but for the longest time, they were pretty inseparable. Uh, and that is Joel and Ethan, the Coen brothers. That's uh, nice. good. Good pick. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know that there's a... I mean, there's maybe one more on-brand director for me, but uh, just the the comedy, the, the the dark satire, the the weird black heart of it all, the uh, very ecclesiastical nature yeah, of what they do. The hyper-postmodernism of it all, yeah, too. Yeah, I mean, but we talked. I talked about earlier just coming out fully formed with something like Blood Simple that just goes so hard uh, and works so well. All the way up to, uh, you know, your uh, your Buster Scruggs, your uh, um, oh, God, what a good movie! The first time, Hail Caesar. Uh, you know, just they they know history, they know film history, they they know what they're about. Uh, they've got a very distinctive voice and style. You know, uh, you, you you talked about Hitchcockian. Uh, you can say Kubrickian, you can say Spielbergian, and you can say Cohen-esque. Cohen-hian? Cohen-esque. right? Yeah. I mean, they they've got that. They thing. do. They do. You know, they've got a particular look, a particular style, a particular voice that others have emulated, um, and 
that usually digs into these kind of rural dark comedy crime gone wrong stories uh, which was a big focus of their career Uh, and then they do something like oh brother where art thou which makes bluegrass the most popular genre in america again for a few years right uh what a weird moment that was yeah uh, a good moment maybe uh the best moment possibly uh we used to be a country a country that loved fiddles and banjos we used to build things like we mandolins we used to we used to, no, the italians sorry uh, once upon a time we resurrected entire musical genres off the strength of one movie based on the, and the power of george clooney <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. that'll get you a long way uh lip syncing to bluegrass um Man, uh, just a couple of dynamite filmmakers who are now kind of exploring independent careers of each other. Uh, Joel going to do Macbeth, uh, this black and white Apple series movie with uh, Denzel so and uh, Francis, and then Ethan now coming out with the looks to be trilogy of uh, campy B movie noirs, uh, starting with uh, Dolls on the Run. No, no, Getaway Dolls. I think yeah, what's called. Uh, so curious to see what they're going to do. Uh, but I don't know that I've ever sat down, watched a Coen Mother, Brothers movie, and you know said that was a waste of time. It, it's usually, Never. man, that was good, or wow, incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, again, uh, filmmakers who on their worst day are doing stuff better than 90% of other directors and filmmakers. They don't miss. Yeah, love they, the Coens. They don't miss. Very good, very good. What comes in at number two for you? At number two for me is True Legend, one of the greats. Uh, somebody that uh, wore multiple hats as a filmmaker, which uh, we got to respect that. Uh, we've already given some love to writer-directors, but we haven't given love to composer-directors. That's right. It's John fucking Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Short off. list for sure. I figured. I figured short list for both of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I One of the most essential genre filmmakers of the 20th century. Absolutely. Um, like some of the other filmmakers on my list, you kind of have to pretend the filmography ends a little early. Uh, if you want to not have to talk about the ward, uh, but even something like ghost of Mars, I know people that are defenders of that one. That's mm-hmm. a blind spot for me, but I, I know people like it, but I mean the apocalypse trilogy alone. Yeah. I mean, the thing is one of the, you uh, read my, Kane? Yeah. my favorite horror movie, a lot, one of the best horror movies ever made, uh, undisputably. And then you've got Prince of darkness and, uh, mouth of madness, which are, you know, much lower key, not a scene, I like them both. I mean, they're both not, neither of them is the jaw dropping achievement that the thing is, but they are both like in a similar tone and vibe and mood yeah. for sure. And that's what I, I mean, this is talk about a, a filmmaker who has his finger on the pulse, but I, I just love this dude. I respond to this dude's worldview. So wholeheartedly, I, he's just got this, I wouldn't even go as far as to call it misanthropic because he likes people, but he just has like a low opinion of, of our ability to get anything done. Mm. It is a very cynical worldview that assumes we are fighting an uphill battle and losing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, that resonates with me. Uh, He's Tommy Lee Jones in Men in Black, right? Now, a person is smart, but people are stupid, panicky animals. Yeah. That, that, that's absolutely the worldview of John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's all... And then this interest with with evil is always there, right? And how, how, how does the encounter with evil like shape and form you? And how do you respond to that, whether it is the shape of Michael Myers or a full-scale alien invasion uh, in, in uh, They Live? Uh, he, he's always doing something very interesting. Uh, and I, I just... Look, I couldn't make room for Michael Mann on this list. I couldn't make room for one of the great action filmmakers. So I had to make room for the great horror filmmaker. 
yeah, I, I just... I, you you've got Del Toro already, so you got a horror filmmaker. Yeah, I, I, GDT is more of a personal choice, you know, somebody mm. that kind of helped me get into movies. Carpenter is somebody that I didn't, like, really get all the way into until I was already ah. into film, mm-hmm. and it just, like, every time I go back in... Mm-hmm. And I, I'm still not a completionist. Still haven't seen Christine. Yeah. Uh, I still haven't seen Memoirs of an Invisible Man or yeah. Dark Star. So I've got a couple to catch up with. Yeah. Dark Star I've not seen. Um, but I've seen the Elvis much. movie. Oh yeah, the Elvis TV movie. Yeah, yeah. Forgot with about Kurt. that with Kurt. What? He did a TV movie with They're Kurt very Russell. Early. <sighs> yeah. Wild. Yeah. And he's got that uh, Showtime TV movie too. I think. Didn't he do one of those like did Masters, he do one of the Masters, Masters of Horror yeah, TV movie? That makes sense. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. But I, I, I get like the real meat of the filmography is just so indispensable to me. And again, I've got multiples of his of his films on my top 100. Uh, so obviously his career speaks to me. But I it just he's he's just and again, another guy that's like very influenced by Hollywood history. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so interesting to me because he never much like his contemporary Wes Craven didn't like see himself as a horror filmmaker and just kind of ended up it stuck working in that that mode mm-hmm. and made the most of it and, and really like made exciting, interesting films, uh, even if they weren't like always what he wanted to be making, which I think is interesting. Like, and again, you hear, he's just like a no bullshit guy, man, which I love mm-hmm. about him. He'll be so honest in interviews about like yeah. what the industry is like yeah, and like what, what he wanted out of his career. And, and that's, what's so interesting to me is, is a guy that like is one of the all time greats period. And still, like, is unhappy with his career. Mm. And I just, like, that resonates with me, too. I'm just, like, interested in this this guy who who wanted more, uh, even though, like, what he got was, like, just such a, an undisputed achievement. Yeah. Uh, and now, you know, he smokes weed and plays video games and watches Laker games. Yeah. Good retirement. Dude just wants to vibe. Yeah, he's just and hanging compose. out. And I love that. Didn't he do the comp- score for, like, uh... One of Halloween remakes, right? Uh, him and his son are working on stuff. Yeah, I think him and his son did music for the new Firestarter and then, That's yeah, right. for the David Gordon Green Halloween movies. I think him and his son mm-hmm. composed yeah. some new stuff. Which is fun. He just wants to write music with his kid. Yeah. Yeah, that's just cool, man. What a cool guy. Yeah. Uh, when you Look, you just get grow out of making films. He's 70 years old. Not everybody has to be Scorsese. You're allowed to retire, and I love that about John Carpenter. He doesn't mm-hmm. have, like, a fallow period because he did two kind of duds and was like, all right, I, I don't want to deal with this bullshit anymore uh who's your number two dustin number two for me is andre tarkovsky nice. uh i love i mean stalker is one of my well my favorite movie of all time still mm-hmm. i think I, I i said it very very provisionally a year ago when we were doing that and i'm like nope it's still my favorite movie right now and uh tarkovsky doesn't miss either even with you know some of his biopics like andre rublev or the life of ivan uh, nonetheless, uh, those are maybe lesser, but they're still great. And then, you know, you've got stuff like Mirror, you've got stuff like The Sacrifice, you've got Solaris, which is uh, not necessarily... It's an interesting response to 2001, and even though I would probably rather watch 2001 than Solaris, I like what Solaris is doing a lot more yeah. in some ways. And so uh, a spiritual, um, humanistic time sculptor of a filmmaker which is an interesting sort of metaphor for what you do when you do cinema and he really does kind of think in those terms as he makes his films and so for me number two is Andre Tarkovsky uh, we forgot to say on our number twos kind of what the entry point we would recommend oh, yeah, is yeah. so for Cohen's what would you say Art uh, you know what uh, oh my god I just forgot the title um, I had it in my head earlier Burn After Reading nice. I think would be mm. an entry point because if you can vibe with Burn After Reading you're on board for anything else they do. I think that's, I'm going to go with, you know, I want to say the thing just because, but that's, 
if you're not into like gore, that's going to be tough for you. Yeah. So I think they live is maybe the move. It's mm, it's gross. That's fun. It's a yeah. little gross, but it's but fun. like you yeah. can hang with it if you're not with into the Roddy, Roddy Piper and all that for fun anyway. Yeah, it's yeah. the greatest fight scene put on camera. Exactly. One of the all time great fight scenes. A great sense of humor Good. for a film, and an all time great ending. Maybe one of the best endings ever. <laughs> Come on. Uh, they blow up the radio station and then it cuts to uh, the woman with the alien whose disguise doesn't work anymore. My God. Incredible stuff. What about uh, for uh, Tarkovsky? Stalker. Yeah. yeah. Go with Stalker. Just go with the best one and, and from there you can chase your Call way Call it through. a day. Yeah, if you like it, keep going. If you don't, you know, you do the one thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what I would say with that. You'll know if you're in or not. Yeah. Based on that. For sure. Yeah. It's time. It's time. It is time. We all have selected a favorite filmmaker favorite director somebody who speaks to us at a deep level someone who sees into our very dreams and understands us i don't know i don't know i don't know that, what that may be is. accurate yeah i don't know what do you guys look for in your favorite filmmaker is it somebody that just like got you into film is it somebody that you know like you you connect with their worldview is it somebody who's like films you always have fun revisiting like what what were you looking for in your number one i definitely thought about always fun to revisit mm-hmm I definitely thought about what turned my academic crank when I started getting involved in that mm-hmm. side of film watching. Uh, what, what do you think it art? Yeah, I mean, revisiting is a big, I think, viability to introduce new audiences maybe as well. Um, I think there's a little nostalgia as well because of the affinity my mom had for this director mm. as well and introducing me to their work early on. Yeah, I get that. And holding it in such high regard that it's just kind of latched on and then understanding later that impact. I think singularity was a thing for me too. Mm. Like just the way in which that there's really nobody else quite like this person. Mm-hmm. That was a big part of it for me. Yeah. There, there's just no other filmography like this one. Mm-hmm. There's sim- I guess there's maybe one filmography on my list that's kind of similar, but this is really, there's just like nobody else like with a career like this. Um, all right. All right. What's number one for you, Art? Yeah. I mean, you should be able to figure it out by now, but it's Hitch. Right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, absolutely. Jan mentioned him yet. Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> I can't, that one was out of the bag early. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, a, a director or filmmaker whose movies my mom introduced to me, someone she held in high regard. You know, we got to watch Rewindow. We got to watch Vertigo. You got to watch Psycho. You got to watch The Birds. Uh, so that was always kind of a part of my, I think, film DNA as I started to get more into it. And then to realize sort of the extent to which his impact is, right? I mean, to have a adjective named after you yeah, to yeah. put out that kind of output uh, that he did. Uh, and again, like you said, I mean, not everything was a hit, uh, but again, another director who's even worse days are still yeah. pretty good days. Lifeboat's you know? kind of meh, but I'd watch it right now. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, com- compared to his own work, you know, Lifeboat's not vertigo. Right. But compared to maybe something from somebody else at that time, right? It's the best stuff there, yeah. And I think, you know, he's one of those filmmakers that from that period whose work I can keep in a back pocket. And, you know, when I have a class of students, you know, never seen a black and white movie, never seen anything since before they were born, I can be like, I think you're going to like this and show them your window, show them vertigo, show them psycho. And they're going to be into it. Right. And I've, I've had it work a number of times. Uh, The students really buy into that. 
Uh, and you know, there's not, you know, I love Casablanca students don't go for it. You mm-hmm. know? Sunset Boulevard, they kind of like, cause it's weird. Right. But, but Hitch is on a level of, he understood his audiences. And I think there's something generational about that, that there's something intrinsic in audiences. They want to be thrilled. They want to be excited and they want to be engaged. And I think he maybe understood that better than most filmmakers working then and now. Uh, and so I, I like what he does. You know, there's a, that importance factor as well, that kind of canonization that we get into with it. But also, I, I like his movies. And, you know, yeah. I enjoy I've been I've got two under my belt so far, but I had a friend. She's never seen any of his work. Uh, she'd been put off kind of by Psycho and the horror elements there. Sure. Uh, and I was like, well, we got to watch some of this stuff. So we've watched Rear Window. We've seen North by Northwest and kind of becoming this series of Hitchcock happy hours where we go back and watch some of these movies. Oh, that's so that's fun. A good time. My end game is to get her to watch Psycho, but we'll see what happens. Good luck. Good luck with that. What's number two for you, uh, Del Tony? Number uh, oh, oh what do you, where do you tell people start? With Psy- I mean, yeah. Psycho. Yeah. I, mean, I would assume. It's my first or, one. I think even more so than Rear Window. Yeah. I think yeah. Rear Window. I love Rear Window, but I think it can be a little slow to get into. You know, but once Grace Kelly's hooked, the audience is hooked. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, Psycho. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't figured it out now, for me, yeah, it's, it's the Wachowskis. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. Lillian Lana Wachowski. Um, mm-hmm. Much like Arthur's pick of the Coens, this is a filmmaking team that does not exist anymore, which I think makes them even more worth inclusion, you know, because there is a defined body of work and we probably will not be getting any more. Um, what, I mean, you... If you stop at Bound in the Matrix, if if they'd gotten hit by a bus after the release of the Matrix, they would be two of the most important filmmakers that ever lived. Uh, and while we've talked about Riffy and Riffer and sort of media literacy kind of defining parts of the filmmaking as we've gone over these lists, I think these are two filmmakers that like that Riffy is huge. They're sort of like the first 21st century filmmakers in that their their media reference points are not just film. It is comics and anime and video games. And it is a sort of a totality of like... And Baudrillard. Yeah. Was, and, philo- yeah. and media philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's yep. all there. And it is like so interested in how we engage with storytelling, how we tell stories to one another, how, how things like bind themselves into the firmware of our minds. Uh, and I, I just, I think they're so exciting and yeah, you might not like the matrix sequels. You might be an incurious, small minded person and that's okay. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> I like, I like for you that your worldview is so small that you can watch the matrix sequels and bounce off of them entirely. Good for you that you don't consider whether or not your life is a waste of time uh, and that you truly feel like the special in your mm-hmm. life. Good for you. Uh, but we can move on from that and look at their works as writers and producers on the Animatrix, which is just like a great piece of like mixed media, you know, uh, meta text. Uh, this sort of like one of the first examples of sort of a multimedia franchise as we understand them today. Transmedia storytelling. That was exactly. Jenkins. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. That was the word I couldn't fucking think of. Uh, but even, you know, there's sort of second unit director work on V for Vendetta, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, a, a flawed adaptation, but a very fun and interesting movie. Uh, of course, Arthur and I are great lovers of Speed Racer. Speed Racer, like Speed another Racer. adaptation. Yes. I mean, truly... Truly their best work. I mean, I would say... You, I wouldn't argue with anybody who said that. There is no MCU without Speed Racer. There is no The Volume uh, without Speed Racer. 
I and obviously there's no speed racer without George Lucas's, uh, you know, prequel trilogy. But really, they they took that sort of green screen set and said, how much can we can we really integrate animation mm-hmm. and computers into the filmmaking? And how how much can we take the tone of of anime? Can we take the tone of animation and and put it in a live action film? And like, obviously, they're standing on the the shoulders of something like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but there is no, you know, I mean, the last 10, 15 years of of tentpole filmmaking doesn't exist without their filmography. Mm -hmm. And while it is unfortunate that they got lost in sort of the world of blockbuster filmmaking because of The Matrix, I think they stay interesting and and important throughout these films. Because then you get something like Cloud Atlas, Mm -hmm. which is... Such an odd, misshapen, insane film that begs you, nay, pleads with you, please get on board with our race swapping. I know it's weird. (laughs) We know the prosthetics only kind of work. We know that there are like all sorts of uh, sociopolitical issues with the race swapping. But if you can get on board with it, it's crazy misshapen film. It is a like really beautiful humanist text and i I guess i I look at this as the flip side of the of carpenter right Mm -hmm. the carpenter speaks to my cynicism and the wachowskis speak to my optimism uh they they are fundamentally humanist filmmakers who like believe in the capacity of the human spirit to move mountains and uh believe in our ability to connect with one another and and help each other uh because they end their very successful run together on uh, Sense Eight. Yes, I'm skipping over Jupiter Ascending. You can hear the three of us talk about how that's a movie that I like, and these two don't. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. But they end their career together on <laughs> Sense Eight, which I think is really just a great kind of culmination of like what their deal was. Not the best looking thing they ever made because they are working on a Netflix budgets for for you know pretty big expansive series. Uh, but again, like as storytellers, both in terms of like the stories they tell, but visually the things that they conjure up, I mean, it's just all there. And uh, yeah, obviously you start with the matrix because where else would you start? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it is such a, a watershed moment in filmmaking. If you haven't seen it in a long time, I promise it will re reengage you. Every, every person that talks to me about, you know what I rewatched recently. <laughs> and I, again, I hear this less because matrix four has come and gone now, but in the years leading up to matrix four, I kept having people talk to me about how they had revisited the matrix recently. And, how shocked they were that it was so important and so good still. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. duh. Yeah. Obviously. Uh, yeah, it's never stopped kicking ass and, and likely never will. Dustin, who's your favorite filmmaker? It's David Lynch. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, I mean, that's a yeah, we, to- yeah. totally on-brand pick. All three of us had our most on-brand, most obvious picks. Yeah, for yeah. One. Uh, it's yeah. David Lynch. Uh, and it's because I want to go back to Twin Peaks all the time. It's because... I am also sort of obsessed with The Wizard of Oz and want to think about it darkly. It's because I I want to see Nicolas Cage in a snakeskin jacket because it's a symbol of his, a symbol of his individualism and uh, those kinds of things. I, I, be, I absolutely just adore his way of looking so askew at the world to help us to be more human. Because that's really the thing is, is that he wants to look at dark things, but because he doesn't want us to become obsessed with them, but rather because he wants us to see that which is sort of good, noble, true, and perfect, and meditate on that instead. There, uh, the, the entirety of Twin Peaks being a, a TV series in which uh, it's murder of the week that refuses to move on. Yeah. Because that's a person. 
that's fascinating. The uh, idea that um, of uh, Kyle McLaughlin's obsession with um, Isabella Rossellini and, and Blue Velvet, so that he can see that this sort of dark underbelly is not for everybody and to reject the world of Frank and then run off into the sunset with Laura Dern. Are you saying that made me switch my answer, by the way? You should start with Bound. You should start with Bound? Yeah. yeah. Don't start with The Matrix. Start with Bound. God, what a movie. Good call. Yeah. But Bound makes me think of Blue Velvet in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's they are. Similar riffs on noir storytelling. Yeah, they're a piece to one another. And so, uh, yeah, he's an interesting experimentalist. uh, Racerhead is an incredible movie that's like the best student film ever. And uh, yeah, his filmography never disappoints, even when it's disappointing like Dune, because he he still manages to be himself despite all of the sort of De Laurentiis interference that goes on with that. So yeah, uh, for me, it's on brand 100%. It's David Lynch. Well, there you have it. The three of us remain who we are. We like the filmmakers despite, we like. Whatever. Despite 10 years of growth making this podcast, and despite all the changes from you know how these lists would have looked back then to now. We're still basically us. Yeah. 10 years ago, who's one director you know would have been on this list? That's not, yeah. yeah. For sure. 10 years ago on this list would have been maybe Wes Anderson. I, hmm. You know, I had to think about him. Especially after Asteroid yeah. City this weekend, I really had he to give him some thought. List, I think. He made the short list uh, with without me even realizing it. Not a filmmaker that I like think of as somebody being one of my guys, but like I pretty much you know, like always like his stuff. Yeah. Who? What about you? I mean, Nolan. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, especially yeah. that one-two punch of Prestige and Dark Knight, and then I really like Dark Knight Rises. So yeah. I mean, he probably would have been nice. Yeah. There you go. Any final thoughts? We've already done social media stuff, so you know you know where to do that, listener. Guess rate, review, and subscribe if you're not already. If this is the first episode you're jumping in on, uh, weird place to start, but fun for you, I guess. Go see somebody's movie that you've never seen before. See a new director this week. That's what I want to give yeah. you. See, it doesn't matter who, on our list or not on our list, but you're like, hey, there's a director people talk about, and I've never seen any of their movies. Watch one of those. Uh, yeah, let's, let's, uh, we, we are now obligated to say some female filmmakers we like because our lists didn't have enough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. check out the work of Lynn Ramsey. Chantel Ackerman. Nicole Holof Center. Those Andrew are two. Yeah, yeah. Gerwig. Andrea Arnold. Yeah. Uh, film, uh, got ruined at some point in its history. It used to be a lot of female filmmakers working in the silent era and in the interwar era. And they're all lost. Yeah. There's a lot of film history that's just gone. And a lot of female filmmakers, uh, like Karen Kusama, for instance. Tamara Jenkins. Oh, yeah. yeah good call. Yeah. Claire Denis. Well, I was just thinking about, like, Kusama's somebody who, like, has two movies kind of flop in a row and then just, like, has to reset her whole career. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what happens to, to women in this industry. Again, especially in American film, because that's where we know the most. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Go check out some of the filmmakers we've listed and some of the ones we've just mentioned here in our closing. Uh, we will see you next week. As the summer of lists continues next week, 10 films to teach the 1990s. Boy, if you thought this was agonizing, (laughs) wait till we get into the weeds on our favorite decade. All righty. Well, you keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time.